Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. What's up, everybody? It's fuck. That was the worst. <laughs> I came in it in a tone that I didn't like. The point is, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of True Crime and Cocktails. It's your bitch, Christy Oxborough, and with me, as always, the love of my life, the toast to my bananas, Lauren Ash. How you doing? I am jazzed. Oh, jazzed is good. Yeah, you know, I researched this week, obviously, and I found some stuff that I, I, I mean, there's a lot of reveals. Oh, a lot of reveals in this episode. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm jazzed. I'm jazzed I, about it. Oh, I can't wait. I'm excited. Yeah. I mean, this is the first time you've ever sent me an exhibit to go in the notes. So I, I can't I'm, wait for that to come into play. I know. And, you know, I think it was just because it's so specific. And, um, dear listeners, you'll know it when we get there, obviously. And I will will post Exhibit A, uh, obviously, <laughs> in our case file on uh, on our socials. Um, but, yeah, I just wanted you to be able to see it in real time. I was like, I think that she needs to see this visual in real time. It's very specific. And I will say that that is one of the reveals, again, that is uh, has not been heavily reported about. Um oh. And has also not been reported, as far as I can tell, anywhere in the internet in English. So, interesting. little spoiler there, because this case, of course, took place in Denmark. And so, right. um, yeah, so I, I dug deep, very deep. Uh, of course. And uh, went to the ends of the internet and back. And, uh, yeah, there's lots, lots to get through. You know, we've been doing, I've been doing a better job of getting my episodes a little shorter, not by sure. much. This one I can't promise because I <laughs> there's so much, and I just it was like I couldn't cut anything. I just having to cut down is the worst. 
it's hard to edit. And in this case, it was because there, I just kept finding like thing after thing after thing, like reveal after reveal after reveal. And I was yeah. like, oh, I gotta, it's, it's tough. It's tough to know what, what do you leave out yeah. for the sake of time. And then you don't want someone to hear it and then not get all the information and then be like, well, there's this one thing. And you're like, but I did have that. I know. I, what I didn't have was time. Uh, I get that. Yeah, yeah. I get that. Yeah. Editing down uh, when you have so much is the worst. And then it's also the worst when you're like, shit, I need to like at least attempt to stretch it slightly to get even okay. I haven't experienced that. <laughs> <laughs> She's verbose. Okay. She's We're- the Charles Dickens of podcasts, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> She's Lauren Ash. We are different people. We are. Yeah. That's just who we are. Yeah. Uh, but something we have in common. What's that? Uh, is the love. And I love that I'm putting this on you. <laughs> I just sure. assume. Because I think everybody does. Uh, this, the day of this record. Yeah. Is Paul Rudd's birthday. Of course. Of course it is not his birthday when this airs. Yes. But uh, it is his birthday currently in the multiverse where we're at of i guess you could say yes uh and i mean i feel like i feel like you like paul rudd right of course who doesn't like paul rudd right so you show this is why yourselves I mean, <laughs> oh god if there's someone you might not want to make yourself be known that's true actually don't the show internet yourself. the internet will come for you because come yeah. on what's that man ever done wrong and the answer is nothing he's done nothing wrong you know what he is he's a michael day mike he's a modern day michael landon that's what he is Oh, leave them. If there's ever anything you learn, never tell us. We don't want to know. We don't no, want to know. But I need to believe at this point that he's just a solid dude. I think so. He's been, you know, he's had a very long career, very long career, and I've never yeah. heard anything, no rumblings ever from anybody. That's nice. Yeah. yeah. That's nice. Oh, what? What a nice change from so many things. Oh, yeah. Because I've seen a lot of things today, because as it's his birthday, a lot of posts about uh, Paul Rudd and how uh, great and unproblematic he is. And then I've seen a lot of rumblings the other way about Jared Leto. There's been a lot about Jared Leto today. It's wild. So I, I feel like... If if you have issues, we would have heard about him by now, right? Like yeah. if there was if there was something, someone would he's worked with so many people that yes. somebody would have been like, oh, that guy. Yes. But I think he's just fucking charming. But my question is this. Yeah. Isn't it interesting that on the day of Paul Rudd's birthday, a man whose face has not aged that another man whose face is not aged, Jared Leto, is getting called out for not necessarily making all of the best choices. Um, it's interesting. It feels like there always has to be a balance in the universe or something, right? And it's like, is there some deal that they made? Is there some, like, are they shadow twins? I don't know. <laughs> I cannot wait for the cartoon or graphic novel series, Shadow Twins. Paul Rudd and Jared Leto. <laughs> I Listen, can't wait. I, I'm saying I feel like there's something there. 
Oh, I could be right. Yeah, there is always, it's always that thing where something happens and then something like has to kind of counterbalance or the world stops spinning or, yep. or, the, or the moon falls out of the sky or whatever. I don't know. Mm-hmm. The point is there's always something. I have not looked into the Jared Leto stuff yet. I was choosing to uh, focus on the positivity that is Paul Rudd. Of course. Do you have a favorite uh, Paul Rudd role or movie or bit or any sort of thing like that? We have not rehearsed this or talked about it in advance, so I know I'm putting you on the spot. You know what? That's okay. I appreciate it. I I like being put on the spot, obviously. Um, I loved him in Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Oh, God. The surfer guy? The surfer guy. It was so fun. And I felt like at Mm -hmm. that point, I felt like I hadn't seen him do something like that before, personally. I don't know if he had done a character like that or not at that point. But I remember seeing that movie and being like, this is such a fun role for Paul Rudd. I just I know. Um, Yeah. And and I I mean, listen, I have to, you know, Clueless. I mean, it's classic. Now, I will say, I recently revisited Clueless. And I'm like, it is a, it it toes some lines um, (laughs) in terms of just like, from a writing standpoint, just, you know, the, the college uh, stepbrother uh, yeah. aspect of it, falling for his high school stepsister. And, uh, I we don't know try that. not to focus on that. We try not to. Yeah. It feels like maybe maybe that's a yeah. no. Um, but uh, yeah, I think if I had to choose, I'm going to say for, forgetting Sarah Marshall. Hey. Yeah. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. I also uh, liked him as the Ant-Man. Ah, uh, I just, I like specifically the Ant-Man. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. And you know what? He's a very, oh, I'm going to say it. Buckle up, internet. I'm going to say this. Paul Rudd is American Ryan Reynolds. Wowzer. <laughs> there, there. Wow. Hand drop. I've said it. Wow. Because he has... Like, there is a charm, and he's got this beautiful comedic timing and beautiful face. And and there's just something about them that it seems like no matter what they get put in, there's still a little bit of that character that you're like, oh, yeah, that. There's a little bit about them that's the same throughout their characters that you're like, that's the real them peeking through. Mm. But it's always the part that you're like, oh, that part is very charming and endearing and him as Ant-Man, Ryan Reynolds as Deadpool somehow was trying. Yeah. yeah. But it's just like, I feel it. They they feel unproblematic. Yeah. And they feel like just classic dudes who just want to go have a good time. Yep. And care about other people. I have so little to base those statements on. Sure. But the point is, Paul Rudd. Yeah. And <laughs> Paul Rudd and uh, Ryan Reynolds are the same side of the same coin. Well, who is Ryan Reynolds' shadow twin then, I ask? You know what I'm saying? Like if Jared Leto oh my is, God, is who's Paul Canadian Rudd's? Jared Leto? Oh, see? Oh, now we're, now we're dipping it in. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. It feels like it would have to be somebody who also was into music, right? It feels like... We, we need a musician. We need, we need a musician. musician slash actor, potentially, or maybe just a musician. Okay. Yep, yep. Ooh, and Canadian. That's going to get tough. This is... And it has to be someone with, like, a scotch of problem. 
to to, maybe, to be the shadow twin. Yeah, or scotch to a, a, a large handful of problem. I think. <laughs> You'll love this very naive statement. I don't know how many Canadians there are that have problems. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a lot. I've dated most of them. Oh, the point God, is, yeah. the yeah. point is, um, yeah. Ooh, a Canadian musician. Mm-hmm. I mean, could it be Drake? Oh, well, he has been coming under fire. You're right. You're right. It's possible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. I could see it. Yeah. This Started as an actor, then got yeah. into music. Also face of an angel. Listen, that has nothing to do with his problems. I'm just I'm commenting <laughs> on a face. I like when Blanche just comes out and does a little wink and then goes back down. <laughs> um well, now I'm dying to know who are our shadow twins. <laughs> oh, boy. I don't know. I don't think we want to know. I don't think we should name them. No. Well, well, then, well, then they'd know, and then they'd use their sorcery to... Exactly. Flip the coin the other way. And that's And suddenly something... we're the terrible people. We can't. Oh. We can't risk it. No. There will not be shadow twins uniting. Nope. I can't get over this term shadow twins. I <laughs> like it too much. I don't know. What I don't to even do know if it's a real like thing. It. I don't know if I made it up. I don't know. I don't I know. I hope you did. I hope so too. I hope you did because what a what a beautiful thing uh out of nowhere. Before um, we move on though, what's your yeah. favorite Paul Rudd role? Oh, oh see that's tough. Uh Clueless is where we fell in love. Of course. <laughs> of course. He just doesn't know yet. Yep. Um Oh, Mike Crapbag on Friends. Uh, what a what a gift! Yeah, what a gift to that show he was. Um, oh, him in Romeo and Juliet because that's a sickness for me, and I can't yeah. let that movie go. I yeah. saw it in the theater twice, even though there is a scene early in the movie when they're introducing uh, the different gangs at the gas station. John Leguizamo gets out of a car and he has these cowboy boots that have a metal heel and he puts a cigarette on the ground and he scrapes it with his heel and I can still hear that noise from the theater and how awful it was. (laughs) But yet I still love that movie so much. I don't know why. I don't know why. Um, Oh, God. Uh, He did one um, called Ideal Home. It was him and I believe Steve Coogan, and they were a couple. And I'm gonna say it: it's the hottest Paul Rudd has ever been. <laughs> really? He's got a beard. The hair is like gelled a certain way. It's. I made noises when I saw the photos from that movie the first I'm time. I have to watch that. I love Steve Coogan. Oh, it's. I'm fairly certain it's Steve Coogan. I'll be. I'll feel like an ass if I'm wrong, but huh? uh, I'm fairly certain. But, um, oh, God, I mean, Anchorman, um, oh, yeah, yeah. Role Models, Wanderlust, which there is a scene in Wanderlust that my husband and I quote all the time, and it's simply Paul Rudd saying, dick. <laughs> like, it's the stupidest thing, but 
like out of nowhere just to make the other one laugh will just be like oh dick like the way he said it it there was something so funny and charming about him again in that movie because that's who he is in my mind i love it i mean god even uh the the new ghostbusters i was so into that i i'll say i was moved in that movie. I haven't seen it. I gotta see it. I still haven't seen it. I know it's I, on me. It's on me. I uh, I loved that movie so much. I did cry, and I was not a fan of the original movies. Like they weren't. Like this was not a nostalgic thing for me. Right. I saw them the first time uh, at some point when my husband would have picked them, and that was it. But uh, it was. It was not. The, the tears weren't over my own nostalgia. My tears were just, this is beautifully done. I love that. <laughs> and that's that's who I am, the lady that won't get emotional about anything. Uh, but look, uh, before we get too far, I should ask, what you drinking over there? I chugged a large McDonald's Diet Coke. Hey. So that may also be why I'm jazzed so much. You and, and I... Then- and our, uh, like... Oh, my gosh! Synchronicity! Yeah. I love that. Uh, and then I have my Bitch 2 Las Vegas cup just full of water. Because, again, I got to get through this. I can't get into Slurtown, USA. I uh, keep Bitch 1 cup oh, up there. Because, cute. again, I've become... I'm I Like the day it didn't dawn on me till you said it on this show, you just quietly went, you're a collector. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. moment because we were both uh we were both given i think it was when we were both given the golden girls mm-hmm. glass by casey uh shout out casey who runs our pet page yes um and you were using yours it was at a brunch or on an episode or something and i was like oh mine's back here on the shelf and you just you're a collector and i was like yeah shit yeah yeah I've slowly started using things to for the sake of, you know, because you got to use them. If you're not using them, then they're going to go to waste because that's my whole thing. You have to leave them, let them be pristine. That way you're not wrecking them. Yeah, I, I was always that way, too. Yeah, it's things Until, I gotta, yeah. obviously I've got to work through. But no, I think you're doing we're great. There. We're getting but there. But listen, Look, we, I, should, we should my also top pull- is covered in stickers, so I'm making steps. You're doing great. We should also mention the pet page. I don't know that we've mentioned that on the show in a while, if ever. But we have a we have a oh, pet Instagram yeah. page. If you yes. would like to connect with other uh, enthusiasts of true crime and cocktails who are also uh, animal enthusiasts, it's at not pet detectives on Instagram, run by the lovely uh, Casey. Yes, um, check it out over there. <sighs> you know, this is going to make some people really happy. We're just going to get into it. Let's get into it. I was told we got a lot of things going on. A lot. <laughs> a lot's happening. I uh, also probably should have looked over this synopsis before well, it was I put sent things to me. in phonetically, so it should be okay. That is that is appreciated because you're welcome. I I, I really really want to make sure that names are said properly, and oh, I'm convinced. The episode we just recorded that was last week's, I'm convinced there's a name I said wrong the whole time, and, oh, well, that'll eat me up for the rest of time, but that's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Listen, uh, we're doing our so, best. So, today, we are discussing Kim Vall, 
going to be honest, I don't know this case at all. So I'm coming into this, baby, I like it raw. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yes. I'm coming into this with nothing. Clean slate. I'm ready to go. So I'm very excited about this. So on August 10th, 2017, Swedish journalist Kim Vall boarded the UC3 Nautilus submarine with its builder, Danish inventor Peter Madsen. Kim was to conduct an interview with Madsen for a story she had already pitched about him to Wired magazine. Leaving her own going-away party early to do this interview, she was in text contact with her boyfriend, Ola, until going underwater around 8 p.m. But when Ola hadn't heard from Kim, by 10 p.m., he became worried. By 2.30 a.m., the Coast Guard had been alerted and the police began their search for the missing submarine around 3.30 a.m. Around 10.30 the next morning, Peter Madsen surfaced as the Nautilus sunk behind him. But where was Kim? Peter said he dropped her off near her home at 10.30 p.m. the night before. So did something happen to her on her short walk home? Or was the truth something entirely different? Lauren Ash investigates. Well done. And thank you. Um, I just want to say, uh, preface right off the top here, uh, this is primary, we're doing with, dealing with a lot of Danish names here. Okay. Uh, there's some Swedish things as well. So I have consulted the internet. I, I listen to pronunciations. I've written things phonetically. They may still be wrong. These pronunciations may be wrong. Uh, I don't know. I'm going by what the internet told me and trying my best. So please just know it's it was uh, not ignorance if something is not pronounced correctly. Pronounced pronounced correctly. I just mispronounced <laughs> pronounce. So you put I, the emphasis I, on the wrong syllable. What I'm asking for <laughs> is just a little bit of leeway. Uh, yeah. Just know that I am trying uh, my best. Of course. Best I can. Um, also, obviously, this is uh, this is there's going to be mention of some pretty extreme uh, true crime themes here. Uh, so, trigger warning: this is just a blanket one. This is I, I'm just going to say right off the bat: this is a uh, this is one of the more extreme ones we've covered, I think, in some time. So, oh, just know boy. that. Yeah, uh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that until I got into it. So why do you always get stuck with the extreme one? You know, it's 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 just the way it goes. It's just the way it goes. But again, um, important story to tell. So here we go. Yeah. So Ingrid Vall was born Gunn Ingrid Cecilia Nilsson on January 5th, 1956 in Trelborg, Sweden. Ingrid is an accomplished journalist and author. She worked for more than 25 years in the newspaper industry as a general assignment reporter, news director, business reporter, and night news editor. In 2000, she was hired as head of communications at Trelborg Municipality. She is also the author of Trelborg in the 1950s, City of My Childhood, and The Beauty of Everyday Language. She also co-authored two books with her husband, Joachim Wall, who is a Swedish photojournalist. At the age of 15, his first photograph, that of Beatle George Harrison, was published and his career was set. After running his own picture agency in 1985, he started working as a press photographer for the evening paper Kvalposten in Malmö. He went on to cover local and international events for nearly 30 years. I couldn't find any information about how the couple met or when they specifically got married, but I do know that their daughter, Kim Isabel Frederica Vall, was born March 23rd, 1987 in Trelborg, Sweden, and they later had a son, Tom, as well. The couple that works together stays together, side note. (laughs) 
Ingrid and Joachim authored two books together. The first was in 1999, and it was called A Man, an Island, a Life. The book was about Swedish legend Marius Stockelborough. In 1949, Marius founded the famous Le Select Bar, which presently sits on a corner in the heart of Gustavia in St. Bart's. St. Bart's was a Swedish colony from 1784 to 1878. Prior to, and since then, it has been owned by France. As a young man, Marius had the first camera on the island and remained its only photographer for many decades. Wow. I know. He also created the first postcards for St. Bart's, some of which have been carefully saved to this day. He filled a little private museum with various objects, press clippings, posters, documents, records, albums, photos, and other items that recall the past of St. Bart's. And that museum was open to the public on the anniversary of Le Select every year in November. Uh, Marius was a descendant of slaves and became an authentic ambassador of St. Bart's or St. Bartholomew. Uh, and he was the poet of his remarkable personal history. He is adored by Swedes, uh, as well as many of, of the Americans who have visited the island. His charming personality and winning smile have been seen in several documentaries. Jimmy Buffett even refers to Marius in his One Particular Harbor song. And apparently, when Marius decided to add food options to his bar, he asked Jimmy if he could name it Cheeseburger in Paradise, and Jimmy said, Absolutely, but only if I can have an open bar, uh, sorry, an open tab at Le Select for the rest of my life. Marius agreed. That was the deal. And Jimmy uh, Buffett has been giving free concerts to celebrate Le Select's 50th, 60th, and 70th anniversaries over the years. Sadly, Marius uh, did die in 2020, shortly after his 97th birthday. I just was like... I don't know. Again, this is how this research works or how we've our research works. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just like I was so it was such a remarkable life story. I was like, I feel like I have to tell part of Marius's story as a part of this story, um, which I know kind of doesn't connect or make sense. But I just didn't know about it. And I thought it was of interest. You're entertaining right out the gate. Listen, Come we're on. trying to do just trying to trying to do our best. You're not trying to do anything. You're succeeding. Bless you. And ditto. So back to Kim. After graduating from high school in Malmö, Sweden, Kim received a bachelor's degree in international relations at the London School of Economics and a dual master's degree in journalism and international relations at Columbia University in New York City. Wow. As a freelance... Oh, yeah. She's incredibly impressive. As a freelance journalist, Kim's work appeared in such publications as Harper's, The Guardian, The New York Times, Foreign Policy, The South China Morning Post, Vice, Slate, The Atlantic, Roads and Kingdoms, Time, and many more. Her writing has been translated to several languages. She also received reporting grants from organizations including the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting and the International Women's Media Foundation. In March 2016, the German journalist association Zeitenspiegel awarded her the Hansel Mieth Prize for Best Digital Reportage for Exodus, which was a multimedia report she did on climate change and nuclear weapons testing in the Marshall Islands, which was published by Zedeutsch Zetung. Zeitung. I'm trying my best. You're doing great. <laughs> uh, but yeah, she's incredibly impressive. One of her professors at Columbia Journalism School named Sandy Podway said, and this is a quote, journalism is a funny animal. Some love the adventure, the hunt, Others truly see it as a calling. You want to enlighten the public. You want to tell stories that will make people's lives richer and better and easier and bring the truth of what's going on. And to me, that's the epitome of Kim Vall. He went on to say, she knew what journalism was about. It's not just doing good, but it's love of the words, love of the presentation of the words, getting your facts right so that in the end, you're telling people what stories 
are all about seen through the lens of a journalist. I thought that that was such so well said. And I was also like, I automatically now am, I was always invested, but I just felt a kinship to this woman. Not that I'm sure. suggesting that we have even close to the pedigree. This woman is an a incredible journalist, but just um, someone who has that same drive to like find the truth, find the facts. You know, yeah. I, that's what we do on this show. I mean, again, I just did a whole bit about about Marius there and St. Bart's because I was like, I feel like this is something I want to tell people about. Um, Our lives so again, are richer for it. <laughs> Bless you. Thank you. Um, one of her friends, also a journalist named Tim McDonald, said Kim was naturally inclined for, journal for journalism because she was very tenacious. She clearly has no patience for bullshit and she has a dose of skepticism. He also said she was motivated by the weirdness of the world and the undercurrents of rebellion. Weird little corners that hopefully broaden people's minds and she made choices to give herself maximum opportunities to pursue those stories. He went on to say, Kim's approach to freelancing was very inspiring. You have to figure it out for yourself from how to do the reporting to how to place the stories to how to turn it into a viable independent business. It's definitely a hustle. Whether you can pay your bills based on whether you sell the story or not, Kim dove in with confidence and tenacity. Again, just incredibly, incredibly impressive. So in the summer of 2017, Kim was living with her Danish boyfriend, Ola Staub, in Copenhagen. They were planning to move to China together around that time. According to a friend and fellow journalist, May Young, Young, excuse me, Kim and her boyfriend were walking around Copenhagen one afternoon past the old shipyards when they came across the rocket building workshops located there. Young said that Kim reached out to various publications and had email exchanges with editors at Wired working towards getting an assignment to write about the rocket builders whose shops were located there. Right. She had interviewed one of the builders at Copenhagen Suborbitals and was hoping to speak with Peter Madsen. But she hadn't been able to reach him, and she only had a few days left in town before her big move to China with her boyfriend. And it was important for her to talk to Peter Madsen, as he was pretty well known in Denmark, as he had crowdfunded rocket building different kind of like projects. And prior to that, he had built three submarines, including, most recently, the UC-3 Nautilus, which was the largest privately built submarine in the world. He was he was pretty famous ish in Denmark. Uh, some have described him as the Elon Musk of Denmark. So he was a figure. He was definitely like sure. a public figure to some level. Um, Julie Thompson, who's a freelance journalist, said Peter Madsen fit well into the type of stories that Kim was interested in. He was different. He was out of the norm. He was an eccentric designer. He builds rockets and submarines. So you could see why the story would appeal to Kim. Um, and the fact that she had pitched it to Wire, Wired and Wired was interested to me shows that it's like what her other friend Tim was talking about, which is she found a story that was really interesting to what resonated with her. And then right. she found a way to make it work for her, which was pitching it somewhere that she thought that story could make her some money. And I'm like, this gal's got it all figured out. Like, you're living yeah. the dream then. If you're writing about the things that you're passionate about and you're finding a way to make money yeah. doing it, I mean – I'm just, again, I uh, amazing human. So on August 10th, 2017, in the late afternoon, Kim got a text from Peter Madsen asking her to visit his workshop for tea. It was not far from where she and her boyfriend were setting up their going away party, so she went. May Young reported in Wired Magazine later that after about a half an hour, Kim returned that day to her boyfriend and said that Peter Madsen had offered to take her out on his UC-3 Nautilus submarine that night. She said she wanted to skip... There's varying reports. Some say she left her going away party early. Some say she skipped it altogether. Um, 
But definitely it was conflicting is the point, is that the party and going right. on this submarine ride uh, were at the same time. Um, she asked her boyfriend, o- Ola, if he wanted to come. He says he was insanely close to saying yes, and had it not been for the group of friends that they had coming over, he probably would have. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, and he also noted that because she was going out to sea, he says he gave her a bigger kiss than he would have if she had gone out for, say, ice or lemons, and she promised to be back in a couple of hours. There's actual video of her waving goodbye from the hatch of the sub. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where they were setting up the going away party, you could see the sub. Like, it was, it, it's a distance, but you could see it. Just, it was, like, kind of, like, on the on a slope down. So he could see the submarine, like, basically in the distance. Right. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's something. <laughs> so she texted Ola around 8 p.m., and this is the text, and this is a direct quote. I'm still alive, BTW, but I'm going down now. I love you. And then one more text. He brought coffee and cookies, though. That was it. The going away party went on into the night. Eventually, it moved from the location that they were to a nearby bar. Around 10 p.m., Ola started to worry. The couple was supposed to leave for a wedding early the next morning, and it was unlike him not to stay in touch with him. Ola waited for her by the pier for a while. Then he went back to his room. He tried to sleep. He got up. He got out on his his bike. He rode around the island in search of her. He went out looking. He ended up calling the Coast Guard around 2.30 a.m. because it just didn't sit at all with him, obviously. Um, And he couldn't find her anywhere. By 3.30, the police were searching for the sub. They sent out an alert saying there had been a potential accident at sea. Soon after that, helicopters and ships began searching the waters around Copenhagen. Lieutenant Commander Ditta Dyerborg of the Royal Danish Navy said, and I quote, I was the submarine chief officer called to assist the day the Nautilus was missing. My commanding officer said to me, you need to support the search and rescue mission. The last time I knew about a privately built sub, it was Peter Madsen. So Ditta basically immediately, as soon as she heard, like, there's a privately built sub that may have gone missing, she was like, Peter Madsen first thing that comes to her mind. Mm. Um, And when she heard that it had potentially gone down, it made her think of their first meeting, which was in 2002. At the time, she asked him if he had any drawings of the sub that he was going to build, the Nautilus. Uh, Basically, she described that at the time, the Danish Navy wasn't super jazzed about random people building submarines, uh, as it's obviously quite dangerous and uh, also a nuanced kind of uh, (laughs) type of building. Sure. Um, so she took, she looked at the drawings that he had made, and to her, the sub looked too heavy for submerged operation. She said if he submerged it to 10 meters, he would not be able to get out because of the pressure. Uh, so when Ditta heard the sub was missing, she simply said, and I quote, oh, it's finally happened. Commander oh. Lars Mahler Peterson was head of the Naval Fleet Diving Unit, and he was called by another commander who said a sub is down in the northern part of the Sound, north of Copenhagen Harbor, and was told, get your guys ready to go. So they sprung into action and started searching underwater. By morning, the news had gotten out that a sub was missing with Peter Madsen and a reporter on it. Thomas Jersing Jersing, was a journalist and Peter Madsen's personal biographer. Thomas wrote a book about Madsen, which was published in 2014, and he spent a lot of time with Madsen over the years, even right up to the time of this incident in 2017. So when the news got out that morning, Thomas says he started getting tons of phone calls because people assumed when they heard Peter Madsen and a journalist are missing, they assumed it was Thomas. 
That's how much time they had been spending together. People sure. just assumed it would be him. Okay. J-E-V is this name. And there was varying reports on how to pronounce that. But it was it sounded like Jev to me. So that's what we're going with. Jev sure. Olson, a former colleague of Peter Madsen's, said that this wasn't the first time Madsen had taken a reporter for a ride in a sub, but it was the first time he hadn't returned. Around 10.30 a.m. on Friday, August 18th, the sub was spotted by someone in a lighthouse. Commander Lars heard over the radio that the sub had been spotted. And at that point, Peter Madsen made radio contact from his sub that he was in Kogi Bay or Kogi Bay. The, the way they said it in the documentary sounded like Koga Bay. Um, so that's how I'm going to say it, even though that kind of sounds Australian. Sure. Um, but it's spelled K-O-G-E Bay. 30 miles south of Copenhagen was where the bay is located, and Peter Madsen said specifically on the radio, quote, everyone on the boat is fine. So now Peter Madsen's been seen on the surface of the water. He's headed towards Copenhagen. Ditta says at this point that she was told, okay, he's been spotted. Pack up your stuff and go home. So she's like, okay, fine. But then she got another call that the sub was sinking and that Peter Madsen was jumping out of it into the water. She got a sub-sunk message, and Ditta says, no, 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 no. No, a submarine doesn't just sink like that. This is a quote. He could have saved it. There's something wrong here. And there's still one person missing. Ex-colleague Jev says it was very strange because the way the sub sank was the way it looks when it dives. So it didn't look like an accident. It just looked like it was diving. Okay. Ditta immediately because, by the way, she is a badass who knows her shit, and I'm obsessed with her. Okay. Immediately just goes, he sunk it deliberately. Period. She's just like, he sunk it deliberately, and I know it, because I'm an expert in this field, and you could not tell me anything otherwise. Oh. She, she then says, and I quote, I think it would be a good idea if someone told the police. No one does. So what does she do? Marches over to the police that are nearby and tells them, and I quote, I'm from the Navy, and in my opinion, there's something wrong here, and you need to find out. So I think you should arrest him. And they say to me, we can't just arrest somebody without due cause. We need to be absolutely sure, and you need to be sure. And she said, chuckling, <laughs> I'm quite sure. I, I, You're going to hear me talk about Ditta over and over again, and I will show you clips. She's the best because she's so unshakable and confident that she's oh, just I like, like I know I'm right. And she, by the way, spoiler alert, there's a reason she's my hero. Anyway, mm -hmm. so she says, and I quote, things don't go. And, and if I'm if I'm quoting and something isn't grammatically correct, it's because I'm literally exactly quoting it the way that they said it. And there is obviously um, English wasn't their first language. So just sure. That. She said, and I quote, things don't go wrong in that many places. And he didn't close the hatch. He kept it open. You only do that if there's something you need to cover up. And she's still missing, isn't she? Thank you, Ditta. Thank you mm -hmm. for being the person to say, what about the other person who was on that boat? At this point, Peter Madsen is swimming towards a nearby motorboat where he's pulled out of the water and brought onto land. By now, of course, all the newsrooms in the area have learned about this search for a missing sub. They've learned that it's Peter Madsen. Reporters are gathering on land. There's a video of him that's shot at this moment and a reporter yells to him, Peter, are you okay? And he gives a thumbs up and then he says... I have a few things I need to fix. There's also a video of him taken around this time, like within minutes. And he says, he's telling the police, 
She said she was from Wired magazine. When first asked where Kim was, he said Kim was fine, that he had dropped her off the night before, very close to where she lived, around 10.30 p.m. When asked if he knew her name, he responded, and this is a quote, it's on video, only that her name was Kim. I do not check the background when a journalist calls and says, can I have an interview with you? Defensive? A little defensive. Like, okay, man, cool. Mm -hmm. Just ask if you knew her name. So people in the area said that at this point, it was clear that he just wanted to go home, but the police were kind of hesitant. Obviously, Ditta's told them, like, something's up. Mm -hmm. There's kind of a vibe. Um, He also seems exhausted. People who were there at the time said that he seemed, like, just physically, like, tired. So there's just a weird energy around, and and the police are kind of hesitating about whether they're going to let him go. And so then one one police officer is talking on a cell phone and finally says, no, you're not going home. You've got to come with us. So more reporters have gathered at this point. They're asking him questions on camera. He says he's fine, but, quote, sad. He expands, saying, seeing the Nautilus go down was extreme, but that's all right. And then a reporter asks, it simply sank? For what reason? And Madsen replies, uh, a valve failure. Thomas his biographer, said he knows Peter so well. And Peter is a poet. He likes to talk. He's verbose. And he says to him, knowing that the Nautilus sunk and what the Nautilus meant to him, he would have expected this moment for Peter to say something like, the crown jewel of my life's work has tragically plummeted and sunk into the depths of the sea. But he didn't. And that for Thomas, was a red flag. Because he was like, why is he being so blasé about this? It was wildly out of character for Peter Madsen, Mm -hmm. in Thomas's opinion. And at this point, I will remind, Thomas has spent years with him, so he has some insight there. So a reporter then asks, what happened to the other person on board? And Madsen replies, there was no one on board but me. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, Peter Madsen is arrested, and the police call Commander Lars and say, do you want to ask him something? And Commander Lars says, please look him in the eyes and ask him how many person there was when they were sailing out and how many person there are in the submarine that didn't escape. And then Lars said he could hear Madsen say, it was only me. So Lars said to the policeman, ask again. So at this point, everybody's going, where's Kim? Where's Kim? You're you're talking around this. Where is she really? Mm-hmm. A statement was soon released by Swedish police saying last night the woman was supposed to go off in the submarine, but it is now unclear if she was on board at the time of the disappearance. At this point, people thought something had happened to Kim after she had gone ashore. They believed Peter Madsen at this point, even though it didn't sit right, that he had dropped her off around 1030. But over the course of the day, more and more they start people start to suspect, is there something he's not telling the police? It did seem odd that she was missing and there were no clues. Um, the deputy chief of police of Malma, Matt, Matthias Sigurdsson, um, says that Scandinavia is a very safe place to live. The risk of getting murdered in Malma, for example, is exceptionally low. I'll get on, m- more on that in a minute. Sigfridsson said that the call of a missing person came into their command center. And they also mentioned that she was a Swedish citizen 
Uh, she was missing from the sub. And since she was a Swedish citizen and Peter was a Danish citizen and they were both involved in the case, that meant that they had jurisdiction both in Sweden and Denmark to investigate. Okay. So the first thing they tried to do was triangulate and locate her phone. Their hope was to find Kim alive. Of course. Obviously. So as we know, Madsen claimed to drop Kim off at 10.30 p.m. Thursday the 10th near her home. But a local bar owner in that area happens to have the area covered in CCTV. So quickly, they are able to confirm that this was a lie. There was no CCTV footage. There was no one seen coming off the harbor that night. No cameras, no eyewitnesses, nothing. So suddenly, Peter Madsen changes his story. Mm. But the police representatives weren't coming forward to the press with what that information was yet. They just kept looking for Kim, but now they're looking in the water rather than on land. Commander Lars said, My gut told me if there were people on board, there could have been somebody alive. So we immediately jumped into the water. You could see the hatch and it was open, and we have a GoPro camera with us to get it down inside the submarine. They looked into all the windows, but there were no survivors in there. But even then, he says, he never thought it was a homicide. And I know that that may seem impossible, but it's important to remember that Scandinavia is impossibly safe, side note. <laughs> now, I would say that many would consider Canada and the UK to be fairly safe countries. In 2018, Canada had a murder rate of 1.76 per 100,000 people. There were 651 homicides that year. The UK, in the same year, had a murder rate of 1.2 per 100,000 people, with 726 homicides that year. In 2018, Denmark had a murder rate of 0.8 per 100,000 people, totaling only 52 murders in the entire year. So wow. for context, again, Canada and the UK, which again, I would say are pretty safe places to live. Sure. Um, Denmark is significantly, significantly uh, lower in the murder rate. Um, likewise, wow. in Sweden in 2018, their murder rate was also 0.8 per 100,000 people. The total homis homicides in Sweden was 108 that year. And for context, because I know you all want to know, in the United States of America in 2018, the murder rate was just under 5 per 100,000, um, which was down from 5.32 the year before. Uh, and there was a total of 16,214 homicides oof, in 2018. So all of this is to say, this is not me shaming the U.S. whatsoever. It is just trying to illustrate that in Denmark, people don't jump to homicide because it's exceptionally rare. There was only 52 homicides in 2018 in the entire country. Um, and it's also important to remember, Peter Madsen is a public figure. Okay? He is well known. This isn't – so regardless of whether or not that's right or wrong, he is a well-known, you know – cisgendered straight white man who or or is presenting that way right so sure people aren't necessarily jumping to that now again we know the statistics of of who commits murders but we'll get to that um so the night of friday august 11th there was a press release sent out that peter madsen had been charged with murder authorities were focusing their search efforts underwater and madsen was set to have a preliminary hearing the next day the next day, he has that court hearing. He got in, went in front of the judge, got the charge read out loud. He said he was not guilty. And then they closed the doors. And prosecutors said this was to shield relatives from emerging details. Sunday, 
The next day, Kim has now been missing for over 48 hours. The Navy found a giant ship that was able to lift the sub out of the water, and they had to then secure it and tow it into Copenhagen port. The sub was 17.5 meters long, but no one knew what condition it was in, whether it was broken. So they get it out of the water, and Ditta said not to lift it too far out of the water too quickly um, because of pressure and all of those kinds of things. Of course. Um, again, she's the expert, not me. Um they got a container crane, and they raised it very slowly. Again, they didn't know how much it weighed exactly. Commander Lars was next to the crane handler, and he said you could hear cracking as Ugh. they were raising it because it was so heavy, um, much like Ditta res- talked about how she felt <laughs> based on the early drawings. It looked too heavy. Sure. They finally get it out of the water onto land, and the investigators started to scour inside for clues. Ditta said she had to kind of jam herself into the boat because, to use her words, I'm really quite round, unquote. So she had to, like, force herself through the hatch, which she acted out in the documentary. And I just want to say, again, what a hero, because that sounds like pure hell to me as a claustrophobic person. Ditta, you are a boss. Anyway, so she gets herself into the Nautilus. She says at first she went into the engine room. There was no one there. Kim was not there, but it was a mess. Everything was, quote, washed around. She saw something, she says, that looked like a piece of flesh. Oh, God. The legs of her coveralls then got wet. So when she came up out of the sub, she touched one of her pant legs and then raised her hand to her face to smell it. And she said it smelled metallic just the way that blood smells. She also clarified, many people, they said, how do you know about how blood smells? And then she raises her left hand, which is missing part of her middle finger. And <laughs> says, and I say because I know about it. <laughs> and it's just like the best moment where she's just like, I know about it. Okay. Um, again, this woman cannot be stopped. Where she's basically like, don't ask me how I know how blood smelled. Okay. I've lost a finger. Um, and she said, when blood leaves the body at high pressure, dries out and gets wet, it has a particular smell. This was an accident once. And then she just goes, she just goes, so. <laughs> ah! I love her. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. She I takes love no her. shit. She takes no shit. Um, but then she goes on to say, the way blood smells, you don't forget that. I had smelled that and there was a lot of blood. It was not a pleasant experience. It turned out there was also a lot of other proof that something had been going on in the sub. A lot of Kim's clothes were there, her jacket. There were also tickets in her jacket pocket. Why would anyone leave that? If she had been set ashore, she would have taken all of those things with her. Now, I know that Ditto worked for the Navy, but I think she must have also been a part-time detective or true crime buff at least because she was bang on every step of the way and she was the one advocating every step of the way that it was like something wrong, something very wrong has happened. Again, I love her. More on her in a bit. August 17th, 2017. Now we're one week into the investigation and Kim's parents released a public statement saying, quote, we are experiencing the worst day of our lives, worst days of our lives. No one can imagine what we are going through. Kim has worked in so many dangerous places in her work as a journalist, and there have been many times we've worried about her. That something could have happened in Copenhagen, just a stone's throw away from her childhood home, is something we never could have imagined. Which, again, (sighs) contextually is beyond heartbreaking. August 21st, 2017, Kim has now been missing for 11 days. A cyclist riding along on Amateur Island, not far from where the submarine sank, came across a torso that had washed ashore. DNA analysis would confirm that it was Kim the next day. (sighs) 
word got to the press that police had found something. And then there was a call that there was going to be a, pl- a press conference. Police investigator Jens Moller Jensen, Jensen addresses the media saying, we have recovered the body of a woman. It is the torso of a woman. This is something that doesn't normally happen on Danish beaches. So it was big news. Uh, and now it goes public that Peter has changed his story. So now Peter's new story is that there was an accident that happened on the sub and she had died from that injury. Uh, yeah. So biographer Thomas, which is how I'm going to refer to him from now on, so we just keep him straight, sure. says that's when it all changed for him. He had previously struggled with believing there was a world in which Peter Madsen, a man he'd spent so much time with, could possibly have committed a crime. He said it was around this time that he sent Peter Madsen a brief letter in jail. He told Peter that he needed him to be a source of information for why this happened. His letter to Peter was a few sentences long. Peter Madsen sent back a 10-page handwritten letter. That's a lot. Yeah. So they start sending letters back and forth. And Madsen starts saying that biographer Thomas should see his book number two as an opportunity to get a big international audience. So when Thomas recounts this on camera, he does it with horror, like how gross that Peter Madsen would suggest that. Sure. But in December of that same year, he would want to profit off of these uh, stories because he released a series of books documenting the entire Kimval case. The first installment of the series was published on Saxo.com, but was pulled just two days later after the publisher received complaints that the book series was inconsiderate to Kim Vall's family and was too soon, lacking a moral compass, and, quote, selling tragedy as entertainment. The publishing house said they would await a verdict in the ongoing murder case before reconsidering the series, but as of now in 2022, as far as I can tell, they did shelve it permanently. So I love the man who was suggesting that it was such an audacious suggestion, did, before the case had even been finished in court, release a series of books. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. September 5th, 2017 is the next court hearing. This time, the judge kept the door open during the hearing. Reporters said they thought that it would be maybe two minutes long. It took three hours. Wow. This is when they got Peter's whole explanation about the, quote, accident that happened, uh, which he mentioned on August 21st, the day the torso was recovered. He now said that the hatch to the sub, which is very large and very heavy, had hit Kim in the head and knocked her dead, that he panicked. And it was so horrible and awful, he felt he had to give her a funeral at sea. He said he had thrown her body overboard, but he didn't comment on her body being dismembered. Um, At one point, he was standing up explaining to the court how it all happened. And many people who were there said they thought, if you can explain something in that much detail, it's got to be true. Biographer Thomas said, okay, that could be it. It could be a plausible explanation. But... Some truth-seeking reporters also said, okay, yeah, but, uh, well, then now we need to find her head to see if there's a fracture, and then that way we can see if he was telling the truth, right? Yep. For me, also, the fact that he didn't mention dismembering the limbs was maybe a sign that he was lying, but the innocence, I get it, they don't see a lot of murders, they don't do a weekly true crime podcast, I get it. So, uh, it also should be noted that in order to try the case, In order to try a murder case, the investigators do need to be able to say the cause of death. So they do have an imminent need, not only ethically, but also for the case uh, to try and find the rest of the body. 
In the following days, they start diving all around in Kogabai, but it is a huge area. Commander Lars says, take a coin, throw it in 10 acres or something like that, and then look for it. That's basically what they're doing. Okay. To this point, they had been searching for a month. Divers have not recovered any more of Kim's body parts. The movement of the water, the body parts moving underwater, it's becoming impossible. They're doing all of these math calculations about where exactly they should be looking based on all of these factors, but nothing is working. At this point, a colleague of Commander Lars says, there's a guy here. I strongly recommend bringing him in. He has experience in the currents in Danish waters. And Commander Lars says, ah, now you're talking. This is the guy we need. Enter Torben Vong, oceanographer and silver fucking fox. Oh, yeah? I shouldn't have been that excited. I'll send you a photo. I Um, hope you do. I will. Uh, He has an understanding of how things are transported in water. He says, if you scale down looking for a small piece of evidence in an ocean, if you scale it down as though the ocean is a five meter squared room, it's as though when you're underwater, you can see one millimeter in front of you at any time. Jesus. Yeah. I was like, wow. However... October 6, 2021, at this point, 50 divers had been searching for 56 days. There had been 3,500 dive times covering an area of 200 acres. Torben comes in. The next day, they looked where he told them to look, and they got their first hit. Torben Vong is the man. Commander Lars says a diver came up. First, he was throwing a marker, and then he said he found a plastic bag, and then we knew it was a good day. There was a feeling of relief that they finally had something. Tragically, inside the bag was Kim's head. Oof. Dental records confirmed it was her. And there was absolutely no evidence of having a 50 to 70 plus kilogram hatch door hit her in the head. There was no trace of a skull fracture, no traces of blunt force trauma on the brain. So at this point, it is confirmed Peter Madsen's explanation was once again a lie. Divers also found her clothing her shirt, skirt, socks, and shoes, and a knife in the plastic bag. Uh, This was obviously in waters not far from where the torso was found. They also found both of her legs tied to pieces of metal and a wood saw along with pieces of lead weighing down the bag. And despite all of these discoveries, Peter Madsen stuck to his story. Jesus. That Kim Vall had hit her head and died and he simply disposed of her body. He denied killing or dismembering her, even after divers found the saw that might have been used to dismember her her body. He stuck to the story. And that saw had been seen, a very similar one, if not that one, a very similar one, in Mm -hmm. one of his workshops. He had also been seen the day he went out on the sub with Kim. He had been seen with that saw sticking out of a bag that he took onto the sub with him. Still stuck to his story. Don't worry. The psychologist had his on. (laughs) October 30th. Thank you very much. October 30th. Finally, Peter Madsen changes his story. Now he claims that Kim died on board the sub of carbon monoxide poisoning. Oh my fucking God. Kate? He said he was up on the deck and that due to the vacuum effect that the hatch had, it locked him out on the deck with Kim inside for 5 to 15 minutes while he tried yelling directions to her on how to work the systems inside to open the hatch. But by the time he got it open, carbon monoxide had filled the cabin and Kim had passed away. 
Madsen claims that he tried slapping her to wake her up, but she was dead. He then said he laid next to Kim's body for two hours. Nope. Before he decided to cut her up and weigh down her body parts before throwing them into the sea. I don't. It doesn't get better. November 21st, 2017. Divers found a left arm wrapped in tubing and metal in Kogabai, about one kilometer or a little more than half a mile from where Kim's head and legs were found. November 29th, divers found her right arm south of Copenhagen. On January 16th, 2018, Peter Madsen is formally indicted on murder charges. He was charged with first-degree murder and sexual assault in addition to the indecent handling of a corpse. After the latest confession October 30th, they now knew that the dismemberment was, of course, intentional. Ex-colleague Jev says at this point he thought, who is Peter? Did I know Peter at all? Yeah, he had a temper. Yeah, he was eccentric. But does that make him a psychopath driven to murder? Biographer Thomas said, could we have seen this coming? Obviously, the answer to this is no. But in hindsight, I can tell you, I could have seen this. I knew he was manipulative. I knew he was narcissistic. And he was so many things that we allowed him to be because he had this great vision. But that's not the whole story. We know that now. Boy, oh boy, do we. Because if you think this has been a wild ride thus far, trust me, we haven't even gotten started. March 8th, 2018, the trial begins. There was extreme interest in this case. Cameras and journalists are everywhere surrounding the courthouse. Some described it as a, quote, circus. They heard that Peter Madsen might take the stand to tell his side of the story, and that made some people start to doubt whether or not he was actually going to get convicted. Biographer Thomas said, quote, Peter could talk about technique and he could explain how the sub worked and he was allowed to be in control of that explanation because he built it and he still maintained it was an accident that she died from carbon monoxide poisoning while he was on top that the hatch had gotten stuck and because the engines were still running and she couldn't get out she died within 10 minutes. I think what he's trying to say is basically like he was the his own expert. He was acting as his own expert in the case, right? And because he's sure. so educated, he built it himself. He's giving all of the technical explanation. He's speaking like an engineer. But once again, enter my hero, Ditta Dyerborg. Ditta said, some people think they're smarter than everyone else. I was called by the police every time he changed his explanation, being asked, could this be true? Could this be true? Um, it was, it, again, it's hard for most people to be able to tell if what he was saying at court was the truth and real or if it was made up to back up his explanation of Kim's death. So Ditta simply said she didn't believe it. She said, quote, It was not possible for a gassing. It was not possible with the pressure. He was not able to convince a submarine. That's not possible, not at all. I think that there may have been a language uh, thing there, but I loved the wording of it. I thought it was actually like so perfect. He was sure. not able to convince a submarine. I was like, "That's that actually makes complete sense. <laughs> that, that was great. So it's documented that expert testimony in April 2018 strongly disputed such claims of Peter's. It said a lieutenant commander in the Danish Navy said officials did not detect CO2 in the submarine and that mild CO2 levels would not pose a serious risk in military submarines. I'm not sure if this person that they're quoting that gave the testimony was Ditta or not, but my gut is telling me that it probably was. I couldn't find out whether okay. it was her or not, but again, it, it definitely corroborated what she was saying. Still, 
Peter Madsen maintains he was unsure of, I guess, what the cause of Kim's death was, but attributed it to carbon, a carbon monoxide leak. But again, he also still admitted to dismembering her body, saying it was part of a burial at sea. He claims he panicked. He believed it was the right thing to do, sending her remains out to sea. He also maintained he only dismembered her in order to fit her body through the submarine door. Then the autopsy report on Kim Val's lungs was presented, which concluded that there were, quote, no signs of exhaust gases in the tissue. So once again, he is absolutely caught in a lie by science. But in Denmark, believe it or not, it is not illegal to lie in court. When you're on trial, you can lie as much as you want. It's legal to lie. You can switch your stories. And I guess it's up to the judge trying the case to determine what the truth is. I couldn't find more explanation on the ins and outs of the legality of this. Um, This was a crime reporter that was talking about it. So I'm assuming that what she's saying is true. Um, Again, I couldn't find, it was hard. I, again, most of the documents about Danish law were written (laughs) in Danish and the translations were really hard. So I, I, again, I, I say, I say that and I'm, I'm saying that again, it was, uh, it was from her, uh, this reporter who said that. So, One person who was in the courtroom said it felt like a play, that Peter Madsen took the stage and wanted to speak. He had a strong belief he could convince people. He had done it with the rockets and the submarines, and people believed it. And now it seemed he was going to try and do it about a murder. This was the beginning of the prosecutor presenting that Peter Madsen had planned to torture and and kill Kim Vall, and that he did it rationally and intentionally. And it was also the beginning of things taking an extremely dark turn. And I know what you're thinking taking a dark turn, how could this get darker? It just does. The prosecution pointed out that pipes and straps found on body parts of Kim's and in bags containing her clothes matched similar items in Peter Madsen's workshop. There was the orange saw that I mentioned before. There was also uh, things found in the Nautilus when authorities conducted a search. During the search of the sub, they discovered Kim's blood, a sharpened 20-inch screwdriver, a hose, additional straps. Prosecutors questioned whether Peter Madsen planned to, to planned the murder, but Madsen argued on the stand that he needed the hose for cleaning purposes. The screwdriver was to use as a marker for diving, and he saw the saw was going to be used to build wooden shelves. He said he didn't have plywood for the shelves because he planned to bring it with him on his next trip onto the submarine. However, key witnesses maintained the screwdriver wouldn't need to be sharpened to act as a diving marker, and submarines don't require that kind of proposed woodwork. He also had pre-cut pieces of metal to weigh down the body parts in bags. So my question is, is that just a coincidence? You just chose to have pre-cut pieces of metal brought with you? For what purpose? They serve no other purpose. Yeah. So... In addition, on the day he was taken into custody, Kim's DNA was found, quote, on Madsen's person. I could not find any clarification about what the specific DNA was or whether that meant it was on his person, meaning his attire or his actual physical skin. But again, DNA was found on him in some way. And then there's the porn. And... I have to ask you, dear listeners, to please brace yourselves because I know I keep saying that things are going to get darker and it feels like, how is that possible? But uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're going to get real dark after the break. Oh, I, I don't, I don't like the sound of that. 
I'm so sorry. Again, no, I, uh, no, no, it's, no. It's, yeah. uh, you didn't know the full I didn't thing. know. I didn't know. You didn't know. And mm-hmm. uh, if nothing else, you're informative. So uh, let's let's extend the break so that we don't have to get there as quickly as we'd like. Uh, we're just going to take a break. Um Oh, God, I'm envisioning so many horrific things. I can't even think about it. Uh, Grab a drink, maybe some nachos, uh, and we'll be right back with more on Kim Vall on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to True Crime and Cocktails. Before the break, Lauren teased me with the mention of a silver fox. And on the break, oh, dear listeners, she delivered. Thank you. Blanche can confirm Torben is a silver fox. (laughs) Uh, I think we're all relieved and better. We're happier knowing that Blanche has given her seal of approval. Not that it's necessary, but... It's just good to know. Uh, But sadly, I feel like we're probably (laughs) done talking about hotties. I'm so sorry that I used the term hotties. Uh, So, Lauren, where are we headed next? I am dragging it out because I don't want to get there. But where are we headed? Oh, God. Mm -hmm. I, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, yeah, I'm just going to get into it. This is just my, this is just going to be another trigger warning. We're, we're going to be talking about sexual violence, uh, depictions of sexual violence, uh, sexual assault, um, trigger warning again. Uh, I'm laying it out on the table. I've said many times it's getting dark. So, so you've, you've been warned. Oh God. All right. Again, I didn't know about this when I, when I picked this case. We go where the case takes us. Of course. Police testified that Peter Madsen had more than 40 video clips, including animated and so-called snuff films of women being impaled, hanged, and beheaded on his laptop and other hard disks that belonged to him. Uh, sorry, and other hard disks that belonged to him contained around 100 videos or links containing murders, torture, beheading, and sexually motivated impalements. The prosecutor asked one witness if Peter Madison Peter Madsen seemed interested in snuff films. The witness responded, it was more of a fascination. Mm-hmm. To clarify, for those who may not be familiar, the definition of snuff is a filmed real murder, usually of women. <clears throat> the night before Kim's murder, Madsen watched a video titled, 
Young woman in pain as she's slowly beheaded with a small knife. Yeah. It, yeah. His search history also showed that he Googled how to erase all photos on your iPhone and off with her head. Forensic analysts confirmed that Peter Manis- Madsen searched the Internet daily for the phrase snuff films. Mm-hmm. And then the prosecution presented to the court that around the time of Kim Wall's death, Madsen Googled the words beheading, girl, and Argony, spelled that way, I think he meant agony, mm. from his phone. Around that time, a video of a woman having her throat slit had been played on his phone. Some of the videos and animations of the torture and beheadings of women that the police found on Madsen's hard drives were shown during the trial, including footage of what was allegedly Mexican cartel members slitting a woman's throat. For context, it is not illegal to download death porn in Denmark. It is also not illegal to have it on your computer. So Peter Madsen was not breaking any laws by downloading or possessing these videos. The New Yorker reported that during the trial, screen images of what the police believe is a real snuff film were not shown to the court, but the judges watched them with the audio on. So the court couldn't see the video. The only people were the the judges. But they could hear it. And this is a direct quote. The sounds of a tortured woman's cries turned the courtroom into a death chamber for several minutes, reducing some to tears. When the presiding judge called for a recess and then asked the prosecutor to spare the court any further evidence from Madsen's hard drives, the relief in the courtroom was palpable. Jesus. Okay. Finally, Peter Madsen said, What I will tell you today is a grim story that I did not want to tell anyone ever. When asked why he changed his story, he explained that he was trying to protect Kim's parents from the horrible truth. He wanted to give them the impression of a sudden death, but he never expressed remorse for Kim. Instead, he pointed out that he felt sorry for himself, that he couldn't go home to his cats. He also told the court the names of his three cats. I didn't look this up because, frankly, the cats don't deserve to be dragged into this. The names, I mean, I didn't, I was like, I can keep those names out of my mouth. Um, he was asked directly by the prosecutor, why did you dismember Kim Vall? And he said, quote, well, I had a big problem. And what do you do with a big problem? You cut it up into small pieces. In talking further about his decision to dismember Kim, he said, I don't see how that mattered at the time as she was dead. His defense attorney felt that there was no evidence against Madsen, except for his admittance of cutting up her body. But then, there were the stab wounds. When asked about the stab wounds, Madsen claimed they were inflicted randomly and that there were no sexual motives behind them. He said, quote, I pierced certain parts of her body because I did not want them to be inflated by gas. There was nothing erotic in those blows. However, The autopsy showed that Kim had been stabbed more than a dozen times, both on the outside and inside of her vagina, which I would say tells a different story. Yeah. It doesn't get better. Oh, God. 
A forensic psychiatrist had a report which was entered into the court record. His evaluation diagnosed Peter Madsen with a polymorphous perversity with psychopathic traits and a high likelihood of reoffending. This, in part, is defined as an ability to gain sexual gratification outside of normal sexual behaviors, to find erotic pleasure with any part of the body. It's a Freudian term that has been as controversial and problematic as Freud himself, and you could do an entire podcast just about that. But I think what is relevant in terms of this case and understanding the diagnosis that was given is that Freud's theory, in part, was that infants are able to feel pleasure in many different ways in their bodies that are then forgotten along with the amnesia that comes from leaving infanthood. Our sources of pleasure begin to hone in as being in our genital areas as we grow into adults. However, if something happens in infanthood with the caretaker of the infant, it can cause a person to be stuck in this state of polymorphous perversity into adulthood, which can be disastrous. Freud believed that both excessive repression or excessive stimulation of infantile sexuality could lead to either neurotic or pathological symptoms. Now, I want to make it clear, I am not championing Freud in any way. I am not championing the work. Again, it's it's very dated. It's problematic. But I was simply wanting to outline and explain the diagnosis as it was given in court. Another interesting thing to note uh, from a psychologist standpoint is that when Peter Madsen was on the stand, he would often switch between referring to himself in the first and the third person. The judge would often have to redirect him to stick to his point. And he would also use the word she to refer not only to Kim, but also to the Nautilus. He also said that watching snuff films actually brought out his empathy towards women. And for one of the very first times on this show, I don't know what to say to that. The court also heard that that a psychologist who assessed Madsen found him to be, quote, strikingly lightly affected by Kim Vall's death and that Madsen had expressed no remorse or guilt in connection with the events. Along those lines, according to the Daily Telegraph, when the prosecution read back to Madsen a statement he had given to the police in which he described how the 1995 film Seven had sprung to his mind as he dismembered Kim's body, he said, quote, I don't think that there's anything unnatural in that remark. In that film, there's a scene where a person's head is cut off. Just incredibly matter-of-fact. He also said he dismembered Kim using what was around in his submarine. He went on to describe cutting up Kim's body as a, quote, insane situation. During questioning by the prosecution, that was his comment. He also said that he w- he dismembered Kim in the bathroom on board his submarine, telling the quote the court, quote, it's something so horrible that I do not want to go into detail. I will just say that it was horrible. Describing Madsen's description of the dismemberment as worrying, a report by court psychiatrists said that he showed a severe lack of empathy and remorse and was extremely untrustworthy and a pathological liar. So again, the psychiatrists, you know, psychiatry is, you know, often uh, rooted in, in Freudian theory and stuff. So we have that take. We also have the psychologist take. And there is more that we'll get into. Um, but that's just the overview as we move into trial evidence. And I have to say, there is so much that came out during the trial that was reported about. I'm going to try and hit as much of it as I can. I will be honest. Sure. There is no flow to this next section because there's so much. It was 
it was just imp- I just put it all in. I was like, sure. it's, it's going to be too difficult to try and order this. So bear with me. I just want to try and quickly get through as much of I, uh, as much of it as I can. So, text messages between Peter Madsen and his wife uh, were presented as He's evidence. He's married. He was at the time of the crime. Jesus Christ. Oh yeah. Okay. We're about to get into that too. We're about to get into that too. So he sent his wife a message, a text, approximately 20 minutes after Kim died, saying, I am on an adventure on the Nautilus. All is well. Sailing the high seas in moonlight. Not diving. Kisses and hugs to the cats. Madsen would testify that this was a goodbye message to his wife as he was contemplating killing himself. Instead, he laid down beside Kim's body for two hours and then, as we know, dismembered her and put her into the water. Next, the prosecution theorized that due to the recent cancellation of a project Madsen had been working on, he decided to produce his own snuff film using the Nautilus as the set and Kim as the victim. However, no video has surfaced showing any of this, so that was just a theory that was presented. The pictures of Kim's body were so graphic, most of them were only shown to those judging the case. The only picture shown uh, to the court was a picture of Kim's wrist to show marks which the prosecutor said matched the straps that were found in the submarine. Peter Madsen's attorney confirmed that Peter intentionally sunk the submarine, which she said he admitted to during an August 12th interrogation. A psychologist and other doctors who evaluated Madsen after he was charged said he appeared, and this is a list, highly untrustworthy, perverted, sexually deviant. They concluded he didn't show signs of psychosis but that he had narcissistic and psychopathic personality traits, including a lack of empathy and the ability to manipulate others. One witness testified that Madsen had invited her onto his submarine soon after they met by chance in May 2017. The witness whose identity was not revealed told the court that she declined, but that he contacted her again online to repeat the invitation on August 8th. Two days before he contacted, sorry, before he <sighs> went on with Kim Vall. She said, I thought it was a little odd that he wrote to me. If it had been my submarine, I would not have invited me when I didn't answer the first time. Fair point. Madsen's defense lawyer tried to capitalize on the prosecution's inability to determine exactly how Kim died. Coroner Christina Jacobson told the court that there was no conclusive evidence to prove the cause of death beyond doubt owing the amount of time the body was submerged in water. However, Jacobson added, what we think happened is that the airways were totally or partially cut off. That would be due to either strangulation, throat cutting, or drowning. Jeez. Again, the, the body had been in water for too, for too long. To, right. Yeah. It was determined that the blood stains on Madsen's boiler suit, a.k.a. coveralls, were not consistent with his argument that he dismembered Kim's body after her death. That's mm. again, I'm just trying to I'm just ripping through these because mm-hmm. there's so much. Mm-hmm. Kim's boyfriend, Ola Staub, told the court he had considered accompanying Kim on the sub. He said she had told him she was afraid to go on a trip on the submarine. Which is tough to think about. In his workshop, Peter Madsen allegedly pretended to be a Nazi. Volunteer Jens Falkenberg said Madsen would ask if he should, quote, 
punch Falkenberg in the kidneys, or inject battery acid into his veins, supposedly as a joke. Additionally, in the workshop, the crew joked about Nazis, called each other Nazi-inspired nicknames, and when they would go out on the Nautilus, they spoke in German and recited the lines from the World War II movie Das Boot. Falkenberg said Madsen revered Nazi technologies, such as their advanced military machinery, but more on that in a bit. Hmm. Camilla Ledegard Svensson, an old friend of Peter Madsen's, said that he frequently attended relaxed sexual fetish parties. No. Reportedly, he would occasionally attend these parties dressed in naval attire. Robert Fox, a filmmaker who worked with Madsen on a 2009 documentary called My Private Submarine, which is not available for viewing anywhere in, a, in my geolocation, I would have if I could have, said the Nautilus often played a role in his seduction strategies. I guess he was like, hey, you want to come take a ride on my sub? <clears throat> in addition to watching numerous fetish films, Madsen had a member- membership to a BDSM club. A member of the private sex club Det Sort Selskab also testified that Peter Madsen joined the BDM- BDSM sex club and was later kicked out because, quote, he seemed fascinated but not turned on. Which I, I like that that's a reason for getting kicked out. Apparently, I guess you can't just watch. I say that without any judgment, but I guess that's a rule is you can't just okay be a lurker. It sounds to me like he was a lurker is what it sounds like to me. Mm. Um, another thing that came out at, at in trial was that Kim had texted Ola a picture of the Nautilus around 7 p.m. She also sent a photo of windmills as well as a picture of herself at the steering wheel. Uh, Ola was on the shore and saw her for the last time aboard the Nautilus, waving uh, in the sunset, which just feels horrifyingly poetic and awful. An anonymous witness who testified has said, I met Peter about 10 years ago at a party. It was a dress-up party, and he was going as an astronaut. She thought he was joking, but he was talking, taking himself really seriously. She thought it seemed a bit crazy to, that this guy was building his own rockets and submarines. She said, quote, I thought he was pathetic, but you felt sorry for him in a way. But he was also eccentric and intriguing in a way that, that he did what he did. So he kept in touch, friendly, but not friends. I got the feeling that he wanted more of me than just friendship, and I didn't want that at all at any time. Um, but I got the feeling that he wanted more, yeah. In the months up to the case, he would phone and sound a bit manic, and he would text these weird messages saying that he would blow up and kidnap me, I think. One text he sent her said, quote, Since I have gone criminal, I might as well kidnap you as well as your husband and children. She said, quote, I found that really weird and a bit scary, too, and I just wrote him that he should read more romance novels instead of crime novels because he sounded crazy. Maybe he's always been crazy. He's just been really good at hiding it. Now, I'm not suggesting that anything is this woman's fault whatsoever, but if an acquaintance texted something like that to me, I don't know that I would just be brushing it off. These Again, she said they were not friends. They were just friendly out of nowhere, he started talking repeatedly about kidnapping her and her family. Again, I'm not blaming her of whatsoever, but not. that's, again, that's heavy. It's, it's, it, oh, yep. Yeah. Um, she says they talked about her, uh, I'm so sorry. He sent her another text. Quote, hi, we can take a Nautilus trip this weekend if you're up for it. This was just before Kim's death. She says they talked about her having the kids with her. He said no. She didn't know why. Then they talked about her having her boyfriend with her. And he said it wouldn't work as there would be too many people on board. 
so he couldn't go either. She said it felt a bit weird because normally he would invite the kids and friends and suddenly it switched to it can only be you, so she Mm. didn't go. When asked for her. Yeah. When asked, do you feel he was trying to lure you? She says yes and then broke down in tears. So again, I have compassion for this woman that I'm sure in hindsight, again, no judgment to her at all. (sighs) A new witness takes the stand. A woman who has had sexual relations with Madsen in the past. The press is not allowed to mention her name. The witness met him at a fetish party called Manifest, a party for people who like bondage, S&M. Uh, she and other women uh, that testified during the, the the trial said that even though he did have some sexual interests that were maybe a bit out of the norm, these women never experienced him to be violent and never experienced him wanting to be violent. Along these lines, Deirdre King, her uh, Peter's former girlfriend, said in a 2018 interview, quote, Peter was a really, really great person to me. He did a lot of fantastic things for me. He loved bumblebees, you know. He had a little area in the back of his workshop that he called Mr. Bumblebee's Garden, where he would sit and look at the flowers and the bumblebees. It really doesn't fit in my view of a killer. And to that I say, John Wayne Gacy was a clown. So <laughs> there's nothing definitive Solid about, point. about Solid that. Solid point. All, all the love in the world to you, Deirdre, but, you know, well, they also- hide in plain sight. Did you know the kind of stuff he was watching online, Deirdre? Exactly. Exactly. Because that ain't Bumblebees either. No, it is not. Jesus Christ. Yeah, exactly. Yep. A female witness who testified behind closed doors said that Madsen had sent her a link to a blog post that he had written titled Heaven and Hell, in which he descri- which was described as, quote, an entrance to my head. In it, he wrote, quote, if you feel angry with your boss... Stick a knife in her back. Why hesitate? She will not be missed by anyone. Bow to your anger. Use your knife. The blog was written in 2014 and became an important piece of evidence in the case. I also think it's interesting that he gendered the boss as female and said to kill her in that example. The prosecutor in the case read from the blog in court. Basically, it's talking about how, in Madsen's mind, heaven is boring, there's not that many interesting people there, and that he gets tired of being in heaven, so he decides to go from heaven where it's boring and enter into hell. Biographer Thomas says that most of the blog is a poetic description of Peter Madsen's journey through hell. He sees people getting tortured, people having all kinds of sex. It showed that he had those fantasies, and it underlines the fact that Peter chose to go to the dark side, so to speak. And he did it deliberately because it was the only way to live a life in full. That's a quote of Peter Madsen's. He said, you need to cross the line to evil. That you can choose between heaven or hell, but if you choose hell, you open a whole new world that you can engage into. He also talks in the post about crossing the river Styx, riding into hell, which is chilling because in one of his final letters to biographer Thomas, um, biographer Thomas had had called Madsen out saying, I was there interviewing you about rockets. And one hour after you go into your rocket ship, start watching snuff movies about impaling, torture and cutting throats. You did that an hour after we talked. And in the letter back, Peter Madsen said, Quote, my time at Rocket Madsen ended that summer evening when Kim Vall and me took off sailing over the River of Styx. So he talked about that in the blog post in 2014 and then referenced it again after. Yeah. More of his texts were read in court. Many of these were sent in the months leading up to Kim's murder. Obviously, and you can be the judge, but it seems to me he was starting to explore a world of sexual violence. I'll tie you up and pierce you with a skewer was a text he sent to several women. Oh. Then the hobby knife comes out 
and I look at your throat, where is the artery? Another. You're going to be tied up against the Nautilus. Another. I have a murder plan ready as a great pleasure. He starts talking more about killing, torture, stuff like that. Um, a lot about death. He didn't do this with a lot of people, but there were a few women that I think maybe he didn't see as a threat. Um, this is another one. Quote, I'm just a perverted poly with a dream of a taboo-free place where all adults in their right mind can do to each other whatever they want. Sick, perhaps, but there is no cure. And the final piece of evidence that I want to mention that was brought up in trial is that if you look at the photos, and I'll post this on our socials, if you zoom in on like a screen grab of when he has first come out of the water, there's blood on his nose. And it's not like running like he's had a bloody nose. There's blood on his nose. I don't know whether that's the DNA of, of Kim's that they were talking about or not. Again, I could not find any definitive, but it just says to me, either it's her blood or it's his blood and it could have been from her defending herself. Yeah. God. On April 25th, 2018, after 11 days of argument, the court reached a verdict. The trial had lasted seven weeks, involved 36 witnesses. Judge Annette Burko and two jurors found Peter Madsen, 47, guilty of all three of the main charges of premeditated murder, aggravated sexual assault, and desecrating a corpse. The ruling was life in prison. Now, for context, in Denmark, life sentences have rarely ever been used if you only kill one person and have no previous criminal record. So getting this sentence was a historic moment. But it should also be noted that after you serve 12 years, you can apply for a pardon. So the average sentence for someone who gets a life sentence is 16 years. Mm. However, in certain cases, it is possible for a conv convicted murderer to remain in custody for life if he or she is deemed too dangerous to be released. Does that deter murder, though? Side note? I like that a lot. In 2020, Denmark had the best score in the Rule of Law Index, followed by Norway and Finland. And for context, the U.S. was not even in the top 20. It was number 21. The index is based on eight factors. Constraints on government power, absence of corruption, open government, fundamental rights, order and security, regulatory enforcement, civil justice, and criminal justice. The factors help measure countries' progress and how effectively their justice systems operate. I read a lot during my research about prison in Denmark. Often they empower inmates and many are allowed to leave as long as they come back. And the majority do. Um, it's an, it's interesting to me that it works pretty well when it would seem like it wouldn't at all, but they really do treat people like people. Uh, they, and, and for the most part, again, it's not a hundred percent, but for the most part, it does work. So there's lots more that I could have included, but again, for time, uh, I just wanted to give a nod to it, but that is, um, uh, we got to move on again for the sake of time, because right now we've talked about the crime. We know that he was guilty. We got to talk about who is Peter Madsen and what drove him to this crime. The following are excerpts of audio of Peter Madsen himself, which were recorded from prison over the course of several interviews with the filmmakers of the Undercurrent doc, which was on HBO, which is how I discovered this case in the first place. Um, so I'm going to start this section by offering some of Peter Madsen's own words for further context into who he is. Quote, 
I didn't go around living a wonderful life and then suddenly, bang, I got evil. Something made it happen. This is my confession. What the fuck happened? The next one. I'd like to move one step back. You cannot see the crime without seeing what produced it. You need to understand. You simply need to understand things come with reasons. That's literally how he said it. Uh It was unnerving. This one also... Imagine that I was once a little boy. What would you have to do to such a boy to make him commit a crime like the one that I committed on August 10th, 2017? (sighs) If somebody was to tell you you are a narcissistic psychopath, the only way that you can make that verdict correct is to become that psychopath. I know what you want. You want your monster. I sense your hatred, but it doesn't make any difference. There is no closure to be found here. And the final quote, How can it be a mystery to you that good comes in a package with bad? There aren't heroes and bad guys. There are just humans. And under the right circumstances, under the right kind of pressure, under the right mistreatment, you can make people do just about every horrific thing to each other you can think of. I... I don't like that quote. It's not great. It's the... It's the... With the right mistreatment... That uh, yeah, really stuck out for me. Mm-hmm. So let's get into it. Peter Madsen was born in 1971. He grew up in West Schellen in Schelscher in Denmark. His mother, Annie, was 36 years younger than Peter's wow. father. His wow. father, Carl, was a pub owner. Annie was in her 20s. Carl was pushing 60. Annie had three sons from two previous marriages and her relationship with Carl did not last long. Peter was six when his parents split up, and according to biographer Thomas, Carl would regularly beat Peter's stepbrothers, but never Peter. So Annie moved out and took her original three sons with her, but left Peter with Carl. I guess maybe in her mind... She thought it would be okay because Carl had never beaten Peter. I don't know. But regardless, Carl has been described as violent, sexually jealous, and domineering. Annie has been described as very religious. It was when Annie left Peter behind and took his three older half-brothers with her that Peter began experimenting with explosives. Peter claims, quote, I didn't really want to live with my mother. She's stupid as the cat. She didn't know anything. I had no reason to stay there. This is where biographer Thomas feels that Madsen's hatred towards Annie is obvious and that a hatred towards women was built, and I tend to agree. I think that that is the key to understanding the beginnings of all of this. Um, Apparently, Annie eventually moved in with another man, and that's when Carl made contact between Peter and her impossible. Years later... Uh, Madsen told biographer Thomas that his parents were, quote, waging a war using their child as a weapon. It's war when you tell your six-year-old child, you can always visit your mother, but if you do, don't come back. Mm-hmm. Madsen described living with Carl as, quote, how would it feel to be the son of a commander in a concentration camp? Oof. There was some speculation that Carl was actually a Nazi, but I could not confirm or deny that for sure. Either way, he did tell 
Peter Madsen about one famous Nazi, which changed the direction of Peter Madsen's life forever. And that Nazi was Werner von Braun, the Nazi aerospace engineer who later came to the U.S. and helped develop the Apollo missions and would also become a hero to Peter Madsen. A Nazi helped the Apollo missions, side note? (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. Von Braun knew concentration camp prisoners were being used as slave laborers in his rocket program. And yes, he later said he was aware of the deplorable treatment of those prisoners, but felt helpless to change the situation. Regardless, he developed the rockets that launched the United States' first space satellite, Explorer 1, in 1958. He worked with Walt Disney on a series of films which popularized the idea of human space travel in the U.S. and beyond between 1955 and 57. He was also chief architect on the Saturn V, a super heavy lift launch vehicle that propelled the Apollo spacecraft to the moon. In 1967, Von Braun was inducted into the National Academy of Engineering. And in 1975, he received the National Medal of Science. And I guess everyone but me knew that Nazis were working in America post-World War II. But I digress. (laughs) I had no idea. But there you go. So as a teenager... Peter Madsen discovered the Danish Amateur rocker Rocket Club was eventually kicked out because he wanted to use fuels that others in the group felt were unsafe. Carl died when Peter was 18. And for the next few years, Peter bounced around, starting several degrees in apprenticeships in welding, refrigeration, and engineering before dropping out of each one. He spent his 20s and 30s organizing his life around the building of submarines and rockets. He often slept in the workshops where he was building things. Madsen's obsession with submarines and rockets was all-consuming, but not to the exclusion of sex. Camilla Ledegard Svedsen, an old friend of his I mentioned from the trial, told Wired magazine that Madsen became a regular at sexual fetish parties. These were a place of community, she said, where everyone was relaxed about everything, including their bodies, and where women felt safe. Peter also availed himself of TravelGirls.com, a website that advertises meeting thousands of adventurous girls who want to travel. Deirdre King who I've also mentioned prior, uh, who also knew Madsen for more than a decade, said he could be doting. I broke both of my hands once, and Peter came by every day for two months and brushed my hair. He is a man who loves women. I don't know that that's what that was about, Deirdre, but again, I know the bumblebees and the hairbrushing is all that it is for you, but anyway. Um... Some days before Kim stepped onto the Nautilus, one woman said that she and Madsen were exchanging notes via iMessage. It was a joke, she said. She was an artist, and she had apparently been having trouble finishing one of her videos, so she asked Peter Madsen to motivate her with a threat. The conversation began as a casual sexual exchange, but quickly escalated. He says he has a murder plan ready in the submarine, and I tell him, I'm not afraid, you have to be more threatening. He talks about the tools he wants to use, and I say... Oh, it's not threatening. The scenario darkened to inviting a friend to the submarine where they would suddenly change the mood and begin cutting her up. At the time, the woman says she didn't give the exchange much thought. It was not something she took seriously. After a lull in their back and forth, she responded by sending him a video of horses. The moment passed. Now the police have the texts. Again, that's not kind of... Jokes I'm used to, but that's okay. Okay, that's okay. She didn't She didn't know. She didn't know. No. She didn't know. And I have alluded to the porn, which I'm sorry, but we have to get back into for a moment. 
Porn was not invented in Denmark, but in October 1969, the world's first porn fair, Sex 69, opened its doors in Copenhagen. Special buses made the trip from Germany, charter flights arrived from Tunisia and Egypt, and American tourists were excited to visit. The four-day event featured strip teases, live sex shows, and stalls selling porn magazines and sex toys. 90% of the event's 50,000 visitors were male, but there was no significant protests from Danish feminists. At the time, many of them perceived the legalization of porn as a triumphant, liberating end to generations of sexual repression and taboo. But the industry had its dark side. Child pornography was not criminalized in Denmark until as late as 1980. And the porn industry's second wave of films included many depictions of violence against women. One entitled Anglen, uh, which translates to Angels, from 1973, includes a scene where bikers storm a confirmation service, crucify the priest, and rape young girls in front of the altar. Uh, Mm -hmm. At the time, the women's movement became uneasy. Um, obviously, feminists initially perceived the porn movement as being empowering, but then it was starting to look as the very opposite. Regardless, it's interesting to note that Peter Madsen grew up as part of this first generation of legal porn consumers, just based on what we know of his porn consumption and snuff consumption uh, later in life. In his early 20s, as we know, he was immersed in the BDSM scene, and by his own admission during his trial, he said he was, quote, very promiscuous and auto-erotically active. Okay, so during his 30s, we know that his engineering focus was on his submarines. He built three in total, the Freya in 2002, the Kraka in 2005, and the Nautilus in 2008, which he called his masterpiece. At its first dive, he was asked, what is your next project? And he said, I think I will do something else. Now I look up at the stars. And not long after that, he began his rocket project called Copenhagen Suborbitals. It was founded May 2008. He was planning to build a rocket that could fly him into space. And biographer Thomas says it touched a nerve of you can do this yourself. You don't need government funding. And it seemed like it could actually be done. And this is why. Uh, Thomas says that he wanted to write the book about Madsen in the first place. He also says that they were these great years. It was like a mini space age was happening with these amateur rocket builders. His ex-colleague Jeff said it wasn't about the money. It was doing it for the love of it. It inspired people to do something bigger than themselves. I will also say that Jeff talked about the Kraka, saying that the sub looked like a Nazi sub and how beautiful it was. So just adding it for context. Hmm. Madsen was known to swing between rage and euphoria. One volunteer at his company, Copenhagen Suborbitals, said that if something didn't please him, he would behave like a child. Uh, His mood would turn and stuff would start flying. He would start throwing hammers, screwdrivers, other tools. Um, He would go from being supportive to pensive, exasperating, sarcastic. Um, Again, we already talked about the, the Nazi jokes, which apparently were throwing being thrown around wildly. Um, Mm. Many of the mental health professionals at the trial, again, talked about some thought there was Freudian symbolism in his kind of even gravitating towards a submarine. Uh, For some, they believed, quote, the submarine is like a womb, a place of regression where he can withdraw and protect himself against the world of failures and betrayals. Uh, He's in another element in which he is omnipotent. He can breathe underwater. All his needs are satisfied. And I thought maybe that was bullshit, But then when I remembered the whole bit about how he laid beside Kim's dead body for two hours before dismembering her, it almost felt to me like he just wanted to be fully in control of a woman so she couldn't leave him, so he could cuddle into her 
Like, it's just about, like, that's what he wanted to control his mother. Like, it's like, I want to control the woman absolutely, completely. And when he did, by killing one in the most <sighs> terrible way to fully control somebody, mm -hmm. what does he do? He regresses to a child and lays next to her body for two hours. I mean, it is I'm going to say, um, as a mother, yeah, nothing puts more pressure on you than to hear... The amount of these killers that was like, <laughs> their mother did something wrong, and this is what happened. You're doing, you're, you're doing, I'm doing, great. A I'm doing fine. You're doing more than fine. Trust you're me. Fine. Trust you're me. fine. Um, so Peter Madsen's pattern was to have a regular girlfriend, or as we know at the time of Kim's murder, a wife, and to seek out, as he called them, quote, crazy ladies on the side. Former lovers and friends of his told of how he would uh, like to scout for women at fetish parties. Um, he began to stage his fantasies. He would seek out porn stars. And according to one witness, Peter Madsen acted in two porn films. One uh. shot in Denmark, the other shot in Germany. He also loaned two submarines to the producers of a porn called Thunder Pussy. It was a 2007 porn. Um about a woman running amok with a libido-unleashing drug. Most significantly, um, obviously, we know that he had been downloading uh, a lot of different porn and stuff videos, so it seems interesting to me that he had this want to be in porn as well, which I'm sure is why the prosecution made that theory that I had mentioned before, that maybe that was part of what this was for him. Um Biographer Thomas says, and this is a quote, Peter would explain the reason why Kim Vall died was his rocket project did not succeed. Copenhagen suborbitals grew into a bigger and bigger entity, and eventually Peter felt he was no longer the sole center of attention. And that was where the problem started. Because Peter can only function in a project where he is the number one guy. It was like he was the dictator and they needed to follow him. That was the big flaw in Peter. He was not able to cooperate with people in the way that was needed to make this great project work. It was the beginning of the end of Copenhagen Suborbitals. He was forced to resign. Um, Jeff said that, you know, there was a lot of drama happening, that he was getting aggressive and angry, and he was thrown out. Peter was thrown out. Um, so then Peter founded RML, which stood for Rocket Madsen Laboratory. Peter says, and I quote, I thought, all right, all right, all right, no problem. I'll just start over. I managed to find new people, but it was always hard. And in the end... He could see that it was just not working out. He was losing. And in his view, if he was going to lose, he was going to lose so much because Peter was his projects. There was nothing else in him. Peter says, I gradually more and more realized that despite my efforts, it wasn't going to take off. It caused a life crisis that ended when Kim died. That's correct. He's saying that he had a midlife crisis, essentially. And the only remedy was killing a woman. I just... Mm-hmm. Kate? The mental report presented in court stated again that he was dangerous because he was likely to reoffend. Um, but given the nature of the crime, the brutality of the crime, many kind of speculated, was this his first crime? And there were a couple of unsolved murders around that time. Um, one was the murder of a woman named 
Marcella Mieres. I could not find anything about that one. But there's also one, uh, The Unsolved Murder of Emily Anine Skovgard Meng. And I did find information about that one. It happened in 2016. So this was a year before, July 2016. So just over a year before Kim's murder. Emily was a 17-year-old Danish girl. She disappeared. Five months later, her body was found in Koga Municipality, same area where Kim was found. Um, She was last seen leaving a train station after a night out with friends. She was supposed to sing at church the next morning, but never showed up. Uh, There was multiple suspects. None of them checked out. But, uh, and her body was eventually found in a lake um, on Christmas Eve 2016. So tragic. But in 2021, Danish police seized a white van that at the time of Emily Meng's murder did belong to Peter Madsen. They're looking for possible traces of blood in the vehicle. And as of now, I have not been able to find any follow-up to that. So I don't know if they're still kind of piecing that together, if he is a suspect in that crime or has been exonerated. I don't know. Um, But it's interesting because, again, I think it would be rare that for your first violent crime you go that violent, but... We don't know. Again, does he fit the profile of a serial killer? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So it's it's hard to say. Um, but it's also important to remember, biographer Thomas pointed out, and I think this is a good point, Peter is an unreliable narrator to his own story. Because even if he's not outwardly lying, which he often does, he's always putting things through a light that benefits him. He says... Quote, talk with Peter. He will tell you nothing about what happened, nothing about the regrets of what he's done. It will all be about it being their fault. They made me stressed, so therefore I had to kill Kim. And that was kind of his basic vibe. Someone else always had to be in fault, which is just too much. So, since his imprisonment, September 2018, he filed an appeal to his sentence asking for it to be lowered to 14 to 16 years. He was denied. Mid-2018, a Russian artist named Jenny Kirpin started something she called the Madsen Art Project. Defending her project, she wrote in a manifesto, quote, supporting the guilty one, calling him a friend, we smash normality into pieces, diversify the symbolic capital of culture, engage in cultural terrorism, essentially the only truly effective form of peaceful resistance. But shortly after launching the project, she realized she needed some form of collaboration with Peter himself. And in autumn 2018, she started communicating with him. And just over a year later, December 2019, they were married. That's right. In 2017, his wife at the time uh, was called to testify in the trial, and she came into court and asked to be excused, uh, never testified, has never spoken publicly, got a divorce. She is anonymous. We don't know who she is. There was some speculation about what her name was on the internet. I'm choosing not to share it because she really, and I get that, and I respect that. Sure. Fair enough. But uh, no fret, my pet. He's only been in in prison for about a year at this point, and he's married anyway, so somebody knew. So, Jenny told BBC Russian that her marriage to Madsen was genuine and not part of her original art project. In a social media post, she wrote, quote, My husband committed a horrible crime, and he is punished for that. However, knowing him for real, give me an exclusive right to say that I am lucky to be with the most beautiful, smart, talented, devoted, and empathetic person and man ever. My husband is one of the two victims of his crime, and staying alive was a punishment itself for him. She also complained of thousands of weird, stupid, absurd, or aggressive comments, messages and threats of physical nature uh, from many so-called normal law-abiding good people. I, again, I, okay. Um, 
Here's some more info here. Kirpin used to work for Grainy.ru, a Russian opposition news website, and it was banned by authorities in Russia. So she and another Russian political exile, Alexei Deviatkin, were arrested in 2012 after attending rallies of the far-left opposition National Bolsheviks. So she and Alexei fled to Ukraine and then to Finland, where they were finally granted political asylum. Jenny Kirpin currently lives in Finland with Alexei, where they have two infant sons. But I will remind you, Peter Madsen has said, quote, I'm just a perverted Polly, so I guess he's okay with that situation? I couldn't find any context on that. His colleague Jeb said that when Peter Madsen was married to his first wife, it was an open marriage and that Madsen attended sex parties. Um, I, I could not find out, obviously, any information about whether she was aware of that or not. I don't know if she knew it was uh, and consented to an open marriage or not. Again, she was excused uh, from court. Um, in 2020, Jenny Kirpin was furious when a journalist released a recording of a conversation he had with Madsen from prison. Uh, apparently, it was 20 hours of recordings that they didn't think were going to be used. Uh, they thought it was going to be used for a biography rather than a documentary. And it was like, well, he admitted to the crime and he shouldn't have been used. And it's like, but you're all talking about how he committed this crime. You wrote it in your own social media post a year prior. So I don't know why you guys are all getting up in arms. She then said, we do not want and do not need that kind of attention and kept trying to avoid it as much as possible. And I just disagree with that. (laughs) You're posting about it online. It doesn't feel like you're avoiding all attention. Give me a break. Anyway, um, now, another update is, because of Peter Madsen, Denmark's government very recently proposed a new law that would restrict prison inmates serving life sentences from communicating with much of the outside world. If passed, the bill would limit correspondence and visitation rights during the first 10 years of detention to people with the prisoner knew before incarceration. It would, so, so again, you could, you could see people that were your family members, people that you knew before you were incarcerated, but you couldn't meet people that you, like, met online while in prison, for example. Sure. It also bans them from sharing details about their criminal activities on social media or on podcasts. Um, Justice Minister Nick Hakarup said in a statement that detainees facing life behind bars should not be able to use Danish prisons as dating centers or platforms to brag about their crimes. I like the cut of his jib. The bill came after there was public frustration about how Peter Madsen not only pursued his relationship and marriage with Jenny Kirpin, but also had a long-distance relationship with a teenaged minor. Jesus. Yep. That's right. Peter Madsen carried out a phone and writing relationship with Camilla Kirstein, who was then 17 years old. Even before his guilty verdict, she had started to write him. She said, quote, I wanted to know what happened in the man's head. I followed the case like the rest of Denmark and was just as shocked as everyone else. But then I went one step further. Now, what I'm about to share with all of you, again, I've only found this on Danish language websites. I have not found this anywhere. So this is a true crime and cocktails exclusive. It may not be, but I hope it is. Anyway, um, so the two exchanged letters and talked on the phone for two years until the relationship ended. She is hoping now that by sharing her story, other women will learn and not do the same. She said, quote, he was a guy who pretended to listen to me and I was able to turn off all the frustrations and problems 
and I don't know what. So I automatically felt like there was someone who took me seriously, someone who could see who I was. It was all so creepy and fascinating because it was so grotesque, dangerous, and wild. I was drawn to the fact that I wanted to know more. I am impulsive and frontier-seeking, and it was exciting to make contact with a dangerous person. I'm assuming frontier-seeking means, like, thrill-seeking. Sure. I've always had a great interest in psychology and would like to understand something I cannot relate to. I want to get to know people, also the sides I feel repulsed by. Um, so she, when she got the letter back from him, the first letter back, she said, I felt like I got someone else's acceptance, that he here would get to know me while my parents were constantly against me. I wrote a lot about my problems, and he was like a psychologist where I could shut all my shit out without him judging me. The letters felt like a hug of care. They started writing together regularly, sometimes every week, sometimes several times a week. Mm. They had a close friendship quickly. They shared experiences. He wrote about his projects. She told him about her life. Um, and there is a photo of a drawing he sent her. Uh, if you refer to Exhibit A in your dossier, uh -huh. and if you, dear listeners, go to the case file on any of our socials, you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, so there was no translation on this. And again, because I cannot find any of this on English, on the English internet, and I could not get a translation, I reached out to our Patreon community and I said, hey, is there someone who speaks Danish who can help me translate this? So I want to give a shout out to our dear patron Kendall and her Danish friend Kirsten, or Kirsten, excuse me, um, who helped very quickly translate this drawing because this is one of the few letters that Camilla has left. She burned most of the letters that they that she had from him, but she mm. did save this one. And so I thought it would be interesting uh, and feels, you know, like, am I doing so? It feels exclusive. I don't know if it is or it isn't, but I'm excited about it. Um, so it's a picture of a rocket ship. Uh, and again, it's... Thank you very much for showing that for the YouTube. And again, this will be on the socials. So at the top, it says kind regards. Then he signed it Peter. Now it's a picture of a rocket ship. He's in the back and it says, well steered Camilla. She's in the front and she says, dude, I'm just trying my best. Underneath the rocket, it says, this rocket is for you. The dream of building one is a sculpture in Hurstvester, which is a prison. And then at the end, it says kind regards, an abbreviated version and his name again. Here's a few things I find fascinating about this. Why did you sign it twice you signed it's like he autographed this twice it's like he felt like he was autographing this for a fan or something do you know what i mean yeah also the fact that he's letting her drive the rocket ship the fact that it's phallic the fact that it's this rocket is for you he wants to build one in the prison that feels i i, I just think it's very literal to me very literal what this means well steered camilla Dude, I'm just trying my best. To me, this is very sexual. And I could be completely wrong, and it could even be subconscious, but that's what that feels like to me. Sp Speaking so, of subconscious. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, uh, I looked at this. Uh, I glanced at it when you, you sent it with the notes. Sure. I looked at it. More closely when uh, I was allowed to, when the exhibit was called. Thank you. And I don't know what it says about me or about Blanche, but my first thought was, oh, wow, that's a beautiful rocket. Good for him. <laughs> a killer. It's drawn by a known killer. And then you were like, well, I mean, it's phallic. And I was like, ah, that's why she likes it. Yeah. <laughs> that yep. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But I just, okay, okay. 
he's a good artist. I mean, the angle that it's on, it just feels. Yeah. Yes. No. It's it's well drawn oh, for sure. Shit. But, yeah. I'm seeing yeah, it now. Fuck. What a horn. Well one. steered, Jesus Camilla. Blanche. Dude, yeah. I'm trying my best. This rocket is for you. Again, I creep, creep, creep. Yep. So, for the first six months. Uh, Camilla's relationship with Peter went from friendship to love to almost an obsession. She said, quote, I could not see my friends because I had to spend time writing letters to him. It filled everything in my head. I became completely obsessed, sick and weird. I went crazy if my dad tried to touch the letters and I was at the mailbox constantly. I started tracking the shipment to check if the letter had been delivered. So I was sure my dad didn't take it. The relationship with Peter Madsen took new heights when he got a fixed cell and they could be allowed to talk on the phone together. Oh, he all I know. He always called her at 8 p.m. They easily would talk for three hours at a time. She says they fantasized about traveling and immersed themselves in a world that was not real. It was our very own universe. What fascinated me was that he was both intelligent and very crazy. I've always perceived myself as a little crazy, so we found our own, our very own way of communicating with our very own jargon. It's jargon. It's hard to explain to others. At the same time, the relationship with her parents had become extremely strained. Camilla was 18 at this point. But there were lots of arguments. Her father would try to tear up the letters. He would stand and shout dung pig in the backyard background when she had Peter on the phone. Or sorry, it said Peter in the tube. I think that means on the phone, but I, I'm not sure. Um, sure. They forbade her to talk to him in the house. So she would have to stand outside for hours in the cold or the rain with her mobile phone. And as a proof of her love, she got a tattoo on her arm. It depicted a rocket, some stars, hearts, and a letter to symbolize their relationship. She says she was absolutely in love with him and wanted to make him happy. She wanted to show her feelings for him were genuine now that she wasn't allowed to visit. Several times she begged and asked the Danish prison and probation service if she could visit him in prison. But time and again, she was rejected because of her young age, and that made her become desperate. She wrote to his lawyer. She said she would do anything to see him. She Googled, what is the penalty for breaking into prison? She says it's comical because it's so grotesque. She's asked, did you fantasize about him? She said, yes, I imagined what it would be like when I came in and visited him. She's asked, did you say you loved each other? She said, yes, we said that. When Camilla found out he married Jenny Kirpin, she says she was pissed off, crushed, stressed, could not concentrate. She says her world completely collapsed. She spent a few months in a black hole, and then she said she started to realize she had been manipulated and that what they had together was not a healthy and equal relationship. As I said, she's burned all of his letters, less the one that I right. have shown. The tattoo on her arm has been covered by a larger tattoo depicting a tiger. And now she wants to try, as I said, to warn others about writing, writing to inmates. There was major consequences for her. She never finished 10th grade because of the relationship. Her mother and father recently separated, and she blames herself for all of the problems that she created in her family over the years of the relationship. But she now says, the breakup is the best thing that happened in my life. I can finally breathe freely. The only time Camilla physically saw Peter Madsen in person was when she slept in front of the Copenhagen City Court after a drunken drive and managed to get a seat in the courtroom that day. This was during the trial, I'm assuming. Uh, she said she tried to make eye contact with him and felt she succeeded. Oh, my heart goes out to this girl. But I know what you're thinking. Certainly there can't be any other intrigue. This has to be done. That means uh, it's not. <laughs> on October 20th, 2020, Peter Madsen escaped from prison. Oh, God. 
he had been able to build some sort of weapon-like structure that appeared to be a bomb, which he strapped to his body. Then he threatened a guard, and the guard let him run. <laughs> the difference, again, between American and, and Denmark uh, Danish prisons is uh, yeah. it's, it's different. It's different. Um, anyway, he ran out. He was chased by guards. He was caught fairly quickly. Um, there's video footage seeing him laying in the grass, looking like a wounded animal, sharpshooters all around him. They took him back to prison and did uh, eventually add extra time to his sentence. Some reports I saw 20 months, other I saw 16 months. It's, you know, sure, I haven't been able to confirm. Also interesting to note, in 2020, Netflix announced that they had stalled plans to release an Australian documentary about Peter Madsen after multiple people involved said it used footage of two people featured without their consent. They felt it would re-traumatize and endanger their mental health if it aired. The director, Australian Emma Sullivan, had been filming Peter Madsen and his volunteer crew for months for an unrelated documentary about his attempt to build this homemade rocket at the time of Kim's murder. According to court documents, Kim arrived 15 minutes after the film crew left for the day on August 10th, 2017. They had just been making a random documentary. So the resulting film called Into the Deep, which is also impossible to find, has interviews with Madsen literally leading up to the day of the murder. So Variety says, who obviously people have screened this, this film, it was screened at Sundance in 2020, says the movie is a rare opportunity to study a murderer before his first kill. It's both the portrait of evil and a story of the workers left ashore floundering to understand how they devoted their lives to a fiend. It's never been released as far as I can tell on Netflix. I can't find it anywhere else, but I thought that was interesting to note. So... Some final thoughts. In the four years Kim had been a reporter, she'd traveled to Haiti to write about practitioners of voodoo, Sri Lanka to document the tourism on former battlefields of the long civil war, Cuba to follow the underground network of people delivering TV shows and internet culture, and many, many more places. Her friend May Young writes, In Afghanistan, where I, most, where I worked mostly with men, I never wanted to show any sign of weakness or fear. In reporting this story, my editor made me promise that I wouldn't put myself in harm's way. But most of reporting is just that, routinely putting yourself in uncomfortable positions. In the four months I spent on the story, I did things that in other circumstances might have seemed foolish. I went on long drives at night with sources. I met strangers on their doorsteps. I entered their homes. In stepping onto that submarine, Kim was doing what any reporter on a good story would have done. Another female reporter was asked, would you have gone on the sub if that was your assignment for the day? And she did not hesitate before she said, yeah, definitely. Another female reporter, Julie Thompson, said, I wouldn't have thought twice about going on. That was just the job she was going to do. And I want to make it very clear. She was not going onto a submarine with a known criminal. She was going onto a submarine with a man who she had met prior and interviewed in a business sense who had built this submarine. She was doing a job with a noted public figure. And unfortunately, that noted public figure happened to be a psychopath. I think it's important to remember also that although famous people obviously are, of course, capable of doing terrible things, I think there is a different level when it's somebody who is well-known. Um, personally, I can say, I think I probably would personally be more trusting of somebody if it was like, I don't know him personally, but I know that he's, you know, knows all these other people that potentially sure. have mutual friends or whatever. Um, she had also met him once already that earlier in that day, you know, obviously we also need to remember it's a notoriously safe place to live. It's not the first thing that comes to mind. And I just need to also mention the media at that time has come under fire 
because some some publications did push a victim-shaming narrative in regards to Kim. One headline read, Kim Vall found naked. Where are her clothes? Another publication wrote, Kim Vall was dismembered. Why wasn't she wearing long pants? A dress seems strange. Tragedy. Others said, <sighs> quote, she gave the impression of a girl going out on a date rather than a journalist on a mission. And, quote, what woman dresses in a skirt with a man? There was speculation about why did she go with him? What did the woman do to bring this upon herself? Let's make it clear. He killed her because he could. He had attempted to lure other women. He saw an opportunity and he took it. And make no mistake, no woman should have to fear for her life to do her job, no matter what her job entails. And it certainly should never be commented upon that she was wearing a skirt versus pants and that that should have any bearing on her losing her life. She could have been wearing anything. She could have been anyone. He saw an opportunity. We knew he was looking. I've outlined all of the proof that he was looking. It had nothing to do with that. And shame on anyone for intimating otherwise. One friend of hers said, quote, Kim was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. She had an assignment and a deadline. As a journalist, your job is to talk to strangers. You constantly find yourself getting into cars with strangers, going to random people's houses, meeting random people anywhere. You have to accept a baseline level of risk. Kim had been to hostile environment training. They tend to gear towards a more traditional, obvious safety and security risk, like being kidnapped or being in a crazy mob situation or being in a car accident where you can provide people first aid. But journalists are killed all over the world, killed in prison, tortured routinely all over the world. James Foley, kidnapped in Syria. He was killed by ISIS. That's a larger story. But again, it's important to remember, Kim wasn't in Syria. She wasn't in Yemen. This was her own backyard. The guy seemed normal. He'd been all over the news before. Why would she be at risk? By all accounts, she followed the book. But there are obviously certain situations where the book may not be able to answer. There are certain risks that are not super obvious and therefore obviously more insidious. I think the hardest part of this case is all the things that were left unsaid because no one will ever know what exactly happened on that sub that night, which is truly chilling and horrifying to think about. It makes me sad that even in one of the safest countries in the world, a woman still can't do her job without risking her life. In 2020, Kim's parents, Ingrid and Joachim, co-authored co their second book together, A Silenced Voice, The Life of Journalist Kim Vall. Kim's family has also set up the Kim Vall Memorial Fund grant, which distributes grants to women journalists pursuing stories outside of mainstream news narratives, similar to those Kim investigated and reported on herself. They are determined for her memory not only to be about her death, but also about all she accomplished in her life. And because of that, I want to leave us with a beautiful quote from Kim's mother, Ingrid, in which she said, quote, Humanity needs more courageous women like Kim, women who want to give voices to the weak ones and make this planet a better place to be. I couldn't agree more. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Lauren Ash. Well. <laughs> oh god um calling peter madsen a monster kind of is starting to feel like an insult to monsters yeah i agree um i have a lot of thoughts uh but first let's take a quick break so hit the can stay hydrated and we'll be right back with more of our final thoughts on the case of kim Vall.
Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to True Crime and Cocktails. We're just going to get right in here on my chaotic notes please Uh, i've been carefully taking things but because i write so many and know that i'm only planning on saying certain ones i highlight the ones that i want to want to say of course you do as we go because that's who i am um the fact that the last episode before this one was in the uk and this one was in denmark i like the internationalness of it and hey spoiler alert for people we have cases coming up uh i believe there's scotland and australia planned there you Uh, go so more international is on the way um kim uh sounds like our kind of gal with the no patience for bullshit uh your pronunciations were spectacular thank you uh i have been on one submarine in my life. Uh, and that was at the West Ed Mall with you mm-hmm. in Alberta yep. in the summer yep. of 1990. I'll say it. Uh, it was the first and last time. So you were with me on my first trip and my last trip. Uh, claustrophobia is real. Yep. And no interest in uh, just no interest. Um, I am desperately in love with Ditta. Is that, oh, you know? Yeah. Um, the quote uh, I'm really quite round solidified this fact for me <laughs> and also a reason why I will never do a submarine oh, in my life. Yeah. No interest. Just, oh, it, it's, it, I, it gets, well, my, my whole body just starts shutting down at the very thought of going in. No, thanks. No, thanks. Um, uh, Madsen first saying there was no one on board, but me, I just, Oh, my God. Uh, I am so proud of your side note usage. Thank you. Uh, Torben was, in fact, a silver fox. He really is. I'll post the photo for everybody. There's something very commanding and no nonsense about it, but also something hot about someone who's so good at their job. He was so good. I mean, really, he's 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 he changed the they were completely. I mean, it had been 56 days at that point. And then he came in and bam, there you go. It's impressive. It's hot. It's hot. See? Yeah. Women are actually easy to please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say it. Uh, now, you said um, 
that it was not illegal for him to have snuff films on his computer or for you to download them or whatever. You may not have the answer to this, but it is legal elsewhere, right? Because I've been living under the assumption it was legal, illegal everywhere, and the idea that it's legal some places is very terrifying to me. Yes. Well, I think there's gray area because with snuff films, there's also a fair, I mean, listen, this is again, we could do a whole we could do a whole episode, which I don't we, we don't we want don't want to, to. But we won't. Don't tell us because we won't. Historically, snuff films, quote unquote. Yeah. There was some theory that like, did any real ones exist for a certain amount of time? Or were they all kind of staged? So I think it kind of depends. Like, I think um I think I don't know. To be honest with you, I don't know if it's illegal. I don't know. If it is like, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is because, again, it's it's like, why is it being shared? Where is it from? Like, what's the source? I mean, we see videos on the news of people dying or dead people, right? Like, sure. I, again, like, it's different because this is obviously like torture and and graphic and awful and all of the above, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the rules are on that. I didn't look it up. I uh, I wanted to get out of the porn section as quickly as I could. <laughs> yeah, because again, it's yeah. not even, that's not even porn. That's that's snuff. That's something else, in my opinion. Yeah. Oh god. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, um, I would think uh, that it has to be illegal in some places, though. I mean, I need to believe that it is because it's just the idea that it exists at all. It just. I know. I can't, and I know it's a whole other thing, and I understand that I, that I can't understand it. <laughs> I can't understand somebody understanding it. I, yeah, I just, like, it It really turns me, my stomach just blah. Nope. Uh, uh, Madsen referring to Kim as a big problem uh, and saying that cutting her up was not a big deal because she was already dead. Fucking monster. And then it coming up that she might not have been dead at that point is one of the most unsettling things we've ever said on this yeah. show. And we've gone down some brutal roads. Uh, so I am not a fan of <laughs> where that turn took. Um, oh, and then, of course, <laughs> we kept talking about it. And I couldn't leave it alone. Snuff films terrify me, just like the Nicolas Cage movie, 8mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, which I think I keep mistaking for Snake Eyes. <laughs> because <laughs> I don't know why. Okay. Uh, again, we, we we spend a full day watching Nicolas Cage movies once a year. And so I've seen a lot of them. And it's a two boys, one girl viewing party usually so i i get outvoted a lot when i want to watch like captain corelli's mandolin and they want to watch eight millimeter i mean yeah. it's yeah i get it the votes the votes are never in my favor uh they even say no to family man and that which we have so discussed sorry. before yeah what a what a beautiful thing um das boot no thanks. If I'm going to watch a World War II movie, it's going to be The Sound of Music. Thank you very much. Shout out to the lovely Julie Andrews. Oh, yeah. Uh, just know that every time you set a side note, in my heart, 
I said, that's my girl. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I believe it was his wife uh, that said that Peter was also a victim. Uh huh. Fuck right off. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, I agree. I there is no way. No. He could ever be a victim, with exception to when his mother left him, when he was a child, yep. and he yep. was stuck in that unbearable home. And then, yes, but after that, no. Nope. Uh, the term perverted Polly. Turns my stomach. Yep. Uh, victim shaming. <laughs> Women are allowed to wear skirts. Mm-hmm. People are allowed to wear skirts. What a victim is wearing has no bearing on their on their murder. It never means that that's the reason that they should have been murdered it has nothing to do with it no one should ever ask nor should they bother pointing out what a victim was wearing in any situation assault attack murder any of it it doesn't matter it doesn't matter nope and the mere idea that this poor woman like The fact that he did what he did to her body and that the media was like, oh, but did you see? Bitch wore a skirt. Are you fucking kidding me? I I want to say I'm not raged about it, but I I am raging about it. It's just. And in 2017, too. Like, it's not like this was this was like 1985 and it's like, well, they didn't know any better yet. Like, we know better. That's crazy. Yes. The idea of, like, her torso was found. Hopefully we can find her clothes to know why this happened. No! Her clothes have nothing to do with it. Nope. Let people wear what they want to wear. Is it hurting you? No. Is it hurting anyone else? No. Fucking let it go. And again, we know that it had no bearing. It. We know that. We know that this is a person who was trying to lure, we know of at least two other women before her. Mm. We know that it was like he was just looking for whoever, she could have been wearing anything. It does not have, uh, and I and I, that is true in any crime across the board, but I'm only using that as a way to, to illustrate in this one specifically, like truly, it had no bearing. It was just whoever he could get on there. That's it. Whatever oh, woman he yeah. could get on there. He had the idea um, that he, he he had a plan. He knew what he wanted to do. Yes. He wanted it to be specifically a female victim. He tried to get one, didn't work out, tried to get another, didn't work out, kind of had one fall into his lap and went, oh, that's perfect. Um, And it was absolutely a crime of opportunity. Yes. And it's horrifying to think about. It's also, it's like, it's horrifying to think that somebody could do that to another person. It's horrifying to think that he could just be like, he could start with, oh, yeah, it was just me. There was no one else. Oh, oh, you mean the other person with me? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I dropped her off. Oh, no, you know what? She got hit in the head. She died. I panicked. So I thought, I'll take this, these pieces of metal, which... My submarine is already a little heavy and people were concerned about, so I added extra random metal pieces inside 
to create more weight to make it more potentially unsafe uh, for no other reason, because there's no other reason why I would have that metal on board. Um, it's just this man. It's not even a man. Um, oh, God, I just wish I had the right words to really describe uh, my whole thought process through this whole journey. Uh, I didn't know what to expect coming in. And yeah. I can say a good 90% I didn't see coming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I understand and that. That's, yeah. I mean, when I glanced over the synopsis and saw the word porn, I went, ah, Jesus. (laughs) I was like, we're in it. We're in it for it this time. Yeah. Oh, God. Um, Ola, I can't imagine. I know. What that man has gone through mentally in the years since then. The thought of, I was going to go with her. I, like that I it even was a thought and that he didn't. I know. And I mean, it. it's more than possible that if he had showed up with her, Madsen would have just been like, no. Yeah. And then is. the second he was mm-hmm. like, only one of us, maybe something would have went in her brain and made her go, yeah, then this is weird. Like, then not interested. But who knows? But the, uh, like this... Oh, God. And they were moving to another country. and I know, I and just... they were so imminently going. It was the night of their going away party. <sighs> and it should also be noted, I, I forgot to mention this, but um, it was reported that he, and I don't know whether he followed through on this or not, but it was reported that he had said he, after the fact that he was still going to move to China after all was said and done with the with the trial and everything. I think he was just like, I've got to. Oh, he can't stay i got to do something. Yeah. Yes. Oh, God. It's, I I mean, don't get me wrong. It's heart-wrenching for her family and just for anybody who knew her. It, But for him, it's the fact that it was the idea of him going with her came up and he was like, no, I'm not going to go. And look, same. I would have been like, no, thanks. Not interested because it's not my, uh, not my cup of tea. But. Oh, and then the idea of the last time he saw her was in like waving goodbye in a sunset. It's like how tortured this poor man must be. It's I know, and you know too. It's it's also it's just there's so many layers to it too because I feel like the fact that her her mom was a journalist and was so successful, and her dad was in photojournalism, and they were both like in the industry, and then they have Kim, and she ends up being this like rising star. She was only 30 at the time that she was killed. You know, like she was doing so much like amazing work. It's just, I mean, it's tragic regardless, but I, I think it's always just like for that family, like seeing that it's like, I think it's just like when parents, it's like, they have this talent and then their child shares the same talent and interest sure. and she's like taking it all the way. And then it's like that person is ripped away before they even really even got a chance to get started. It's just like, I can't imagine for the, for that family. I really can't. I mean, it's, it's gutting. Oh, it's the whole thing. The whole thing. Um, even uh, Emily, I believe you said her name was. Yes. Yeah. If you think I don't think he's connected in some way, I mean, uh, I, I could find no update on that. 
So I'm very curious because it was only last year that they pulled that van. So I'm curious about what's the fallout and maybe we're going to have an update at some point. Well, it's it's a lot like um, all the Madeline McCann stuff where yeah. they came out and they were like, hey, we've got this huge thing we've got to tell everybody about. And then they go radio silent for like a year. And it's like, what does that mean? Does it mean like you didn't find what you wanted to? Does it mean that you're like... You found something, but you can't say it publicly. Like, I have so many questions, and I'm so fascinated by uh, how they do things Yeah, in that part of the world. Um, I'm fascinated by, you know, all different opinions. It's just such a weird thing to be like, hey, we've got this. It could be something. And then to just never mention it again. I know. There have been times during research where I've come into something where it's like, oh, we did this testing, so stay tuned for results. And it's like, okay, great. And then no one ever publishes results. And it's like, even if the results aren't what you want, we still want the results. So it's wild to me how often that happens where it just like lets it go and uh, seemingly just brushes it under the rug. But just no media. I know. There is a group of us waiting for answers. I know. We want the updates. I know. We do. I know. I mean, if he was involved, God willing, I hope they find out because that is one thing that will definitely keep him in prison for a lot longer. That'd be great. I love the idea of him just being there forever. I do too. I hope that the like historical fact that he got that punishment, even though it was like his first time and that kind of thing, I hope it sticks with the historical first of him being stuck there for life. Same. I do too. Because isn't, so isn't it a thing? I could be talking out of my ass. Maybe this is just a TV thing. But isn't it part of a thing where if you're not, uh, if you show like zero remorse, they're less, like they're not going to let you out or they're going to, they're more likely to deny your appeal or your bail, not bail. That's not the word I'm looking for. They're more likely to deny you getting out early. Yes. If you can't. Yes. You know. So typically, and again, we're, I don't know the ins and outs, obviously, again, of the Danish system. Right. But yes, typically in a, you know, North America or America and Canada, yeah, you you have to show remorse. You have to show that you like really kind of like repent for your crime, that you know it was wrong, that you feel bad, that you could take it back. But you know as well as I do that you can lie about that, that people can say that and who knows if right. it's true or false. But another big thing to remember uh, and this was big in terms of the of certain cases. I know like, prolific cases in Canada. There is a move, and this is interesting. So there's no death penalty in Canada, obviously. And sure. so if someone is put in in jail for a, a horrific murder, um, typically it is life in prison. But for some that that could be, you know, you could be up for parole in 20, 25 years. And in some cases, they will get rid of evidence. They'll burn the case files. Um, it, it, I think this is just something that was done, but I I have heard over the years, again, just conversationally, um, but there's been a movement that in certain cases that you have to push to have the case files kept so that when yeah. it comes time, if especially if it's a, a killer who's very young when they get caught and go to prison and they could right. come up for parole so that you have, so you can remind the judges and the public at that at that time 
this is what this person did. Here are all the details. You don't want to let this person come out on parole. So there is that too, that it is important to keep the the stories alive on some level um, for those reasons. So that when it comes time, you can, you can keep the people, the, the people, the, the true monsters who should be in jail for life. It can help keep them in life, in there for life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I thought you were done horrifying me today. I'm so sorry. I'm <laughs> so sorry. No, no. No, yeah. no. It's informative. Um, wow, yeah, I guess I hadn't considered uh, somebody being up for parole years later and it coming to a panel that doesn't know about their original crime and just seeing the person before them and is like, oh, and they've, you know, been a good prisoner they've a model prisoner or whatever it's called and they've you know volunteered places or did whatever and never got into arguments did what they were told i yeah it never really i never really think about that yeah and if you're looking upon an old man for example who is old and kindly looking potentially at that point and you know And all you're going by is a flimsy couple of, of uh, you know, couple of files and you don't have the full picture and you weren't necessarily connected to the crime at the time. Yeah. It can be important to try and uh, keep those those case files intact and not destroyed and keep those keep the stories going for that for that reason. Because, again, the bottom line is these people are master manipulators. That's the whole point. That's part of the that's part of the M.O. Yeah. We're not talking about people who deserve to get a chance to be rehabilitated and go on parole. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the Peter Madsons. We're talking about the people who will reoffend, who multiple, not just psychiatrists, not just psychologists, multiple different kinds of mental health experts, all of which said he will do it again if you let him out. That's somebody who should stay in. And to me, it's like whatever needs to be done to try and make that happen. I I agree with. <laughs> oh, I support it. Whatever it is, I support it. Yep. Great. He 100%. can't come out because if this was his solution to a midlife crisis, what's he going to do later in life when he gets out and is like, oh, okay, well, you know, sometimes you get out of a position you've been in for a long time and you like crack your knuckles, but for him, he's going to go murder. That's going to be his thing because it's like, well, I've been waiting too long for this. I I just, I need him to stay where he is. Same. And I, I hope and pray that if he is connected to Emily Meng's murder or any others, that that evidence comes out and that justice can be served. Oh, God. God willing. I... I look forward to that update. I can't wait for them to say something. Again, there's something specific about how they, they're they quick to come out and be like, I know. we've got something. We'll let you know. And then they just don't. Yep. So there's something about it that I don't understand. It seems like it's just maybe that's the way it works. But does nobody want to know? Does nobody want to follow up? I find that hard to believe. There's got to be a huge interest in the follow-up of this of the story i feel like it's either oh shoot it wasn't what we thought it was or it absolutely was and we can't say anything because it will compromise the case yeah that's a great point 
And but I, the, pro- the problem is, is that it's two, it's the two extremes and it, there's no middle ground. So that's, that's also a great point. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I, I need, I, I hope it's because they don't want to wreck the case they have going so that he can just stay where he is. Yeah. Stay where he is. Cause it's the, it's the unknown for me that leaving families with an unknown why did it happen? Who yeah. did it? Whatever. Those sorts of things. That's, uh, I mean, I can't even imagine, but that's the kind of shit that's going to keep you up at night and that's going to eat away at you. And I just can't even imagine. Oh, God. Laura Nash. Yeah. Thank you for your research. Thank you. I don't know how. You always seem to get the toughest cases to research. <laughs> <laughs> but damn it, if you don't handle them. With such a beautiful grace. Thank you. I am proud of who you've become. Thank you. So we're taking this moment to become beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and thank you, dear listeners, for taking this journey with us. This horrifying journey. Dark. Dark. <laughs> I didn't Dark. expect it to go where it did. Yeah. Uh, we appreciate your support. As always, make sure to give us a follow on the socials. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails or on Twitter at Not Detectives. And if you're looking for ways to spend extra time with us, and why wouldn't you be? Head over to patreon.com slash true crime and cocktails. There's polls for future episodes, monthly live Q&As, bonus episodes that have extra true crime bits, extra chucklehead bits, everything you could want. If you want more, Patreon is where to go. And if you're looking to snag some True Crime and Cocktails merch, head to truecrewmerch.com, the only place to get official True Crime and Cocktails gear. Since our last episode, Lauren has added T-Rex merch. She is wearing it now if you are watching the video. Um, And honestly, for those who are confused right now, it's in reference to our opening banter in the Cindy James episode, um, because Lauren is a goddamn boss. (laughs) And thank you. You could see the wheels turning as we talked about it in the episode, and she was like, damn, I guess I got to make that. And then she just up and did, because that's who she is. Uh, Lauren, would you like to tell the people about our next episode? On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Whitey Bulger. Oh, and we know that's going to mean mob, and we know that's going to mean... Cookies. Cookies. (laughs) I love that I went down. I don't know what that means, but oh, good Lord. What a ride this night has been. Lauren, would you like to say goodnight to the people? Goodnight, Ditta Durborg. Goodnight, Paul Rudd. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed 
guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.